Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, September the 15th, 843-661-0937. Around here, it's payday, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, there you go. So we got a little smile on their yeah. face waiting on that paycheck to be direct deposited <laughs> into, the old, uh, into the old bank account. Um, Rev has told me, now he probably doesn't want this for public edification. Rev has told me the bank calls him at times, the community broadcasters. Um, our our global headquarters. We are the South Carolina headquarters, mm-hmm. but our global headquarters would be in the land of Northern Aggression. Rev has told me that Community Broadcasters has called him a time or two, not every time, but a time or two, saying, "Hey, man, we're trying to direct deposit this check into your account, but they say it's full. Your bank won't allow any. Right. A single individual cannot have that much money in his account, so we've got to play." And Rev says, "We'll send it to Switzerland." Send it to this Swiss account. Let me give you a routing routing number. Now, I I can't speak to Freehold. I don't know his financial (laughs) status, but I have heard through the grapevine that every now and then, Community Broadcasters makes an attempt to direct deposit, and it just bounces. I mean, it doesn't bounce because there's nobody in there. Mm -hmm. It bounces because it's full. The bank has uh, a stipulation that says you can – I don't know what that number is. I mean, I've never, Freehold, I can't speak for you. I've never bumped on that. Too, too um, many commas, right? Yeah, I've, I've never yeah. bumped upon what the ceiling and limit right. is for how much money. That's um, funny. I would imagine he's got some Goldman account in Swiss, <laughs> uh, some Swiss Goldman account of which he redirects funds and moves money around. You know how they do, don't you, Freehold? I mean, we know how people like Rev do. <laughs> they move that money around. It's a little bit like the Seinfeld episode. You don't know what a write-off is. No, but they do it, Jerry. Mm-hmm. They, they do it. They do it. So, see, I don't Whatever know how that world, they move that money around in those Swiss bank accounts. What mm-hmm. do you mean? I don't know, Rev, but they do it. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know. Just hey, for the record. Let, let's begin the show. We'll have an abbreviated sports section. You ready? Mm-hmm. Go Gamecocks. Mm-hmm. Go Tigers. Okay. I'm going to name a good spirit. Yep. Go Gamecocks. Yep. Go Tigers. Yep. Thank God for the Cubs. <laughs> That's right. If you're a Brace fan, thank God for the Cubs. Where did that come from? I mean, the Cubs are they a, a sub-500 baseball. Yeah. They swept the Mets. Scored six in the first yesterday. Nice. So you and I are a little bit frustrated that the Braves went out to um to the West Coast, lost two of three to Seattle. No shame in that. The Mariners are a pretty good team, but then lose two of three to a struggling Giants team, and they let a couple of games out there get away. You know, they just they, they blew a lead in the ninth inning in Seattle, I think. And, um, and just kind of stunk it up. And, I mean, it, the season doesn't boil down to one game or one player. But I will say this. The next – I mean, I think I read eight of their next 11 games are against the Phillies or six of their next nine games. I mean, they've got a lot of baseball games with the Phillies here in the next week or so. And Matt Olson's got to start getting – I mean, your eight or nine hitter can struggle. I mean, are we expect an eight or nine hitter to have a dry spell when that three or four hitter – doesn't hit it. I mean, your 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 lineup struggles. I mean, it really does. You got Acuna at the front end having issues, but more than anything, you've got Matt Olson in the middle of that lineup. Um, I'm not saying as he goes, they go, but when Riley's scuffling a bit and when Olson is scuffling a lot, this baseball team can be very very average, as any team would be when the middle of your lineup. Is scuffling as bad as it looks like the middle. I've not seen any of the games. I checked the you know the um the lines. Mm-hmm. But they've I, been so late. Yeah, I don't watch any of the games. I in fact I hadn't watched a single Braves game in a week because they're all on the West Coast and I, I kind of watched the beginning and that. Yeah, all. well, I mean I, I I'm in bed before then because if I can start watching it, I'll get you know. And yesterday they the played television. during during the afternoon. But when I was we're working. working. We're working yeah. during the afternoon. Uh, I was working it. Yeah. But, you know, it would have interrupted your workout in order to. Well, watch I mean, my workout game. starts at normally about four. Oh, does just in case you know my okay. workout normally starts at about four now i float it from time to time because like today 
we've got a lot of um, recordings to do. You and I have a job to do together mm-hmm. at what, 3.30 or 4? Yep. Um, so, so we'll be busy today, but um, normally I work out at 4. I'll try to figure out a way to get my workout in. Here's what I and encourage people to do this. Um, don't treat your workout as an extracurricular. Don't treat exercise in general as an extracurricular. Treat it as part of your job. I know you don't get paid for it, but but you probably do. The benefit you gain from going to the gym for an hour a day is probably as beneficial in the long run as any increase in pay you get um, at your workstation. Speaking of work, um, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of what's going on in the uh, in the macro, and then we'll kind of get into some of the specifics and details. Um, I have some corrections to make. I said something yesterday. Um, it's kind of right, but it's kind of wrong. And I want to make sure I clean up. I make a lot of grammatical mistakes. No biggie there. Um, I think yesterday you mentioned that doctors take the hypocritical well, oath. Well, you know what I mean. I meant the Hippocratic oath, and I just got I my my mouth got going a million miles an hour. And uh, I want to clear this up. So yesterday I gave credit where credit was not due. Um, it is the Heritage Action for America Fund, but it's specifically the Sentinel Action Fund. The Sentinel Action Fund, which is a super PAC associated with a conservative issue group, the Heritage Foundation, Heritage Action Fund, a subsidiary of the Heritage Foundation, committed to spend about $5.15 million in Blake Masters' campaign, beginning almost immediately. Now, now this is a response, a reaction to the um, the Senate Majority Political Action Committee pulling $8 million in spending on behalf of Masters, um, $3.5 million will be spent on television ads, about $1.5 million to fund voter outreach. So yesterday, I didn't give the Sentinel Action Fund the credit it was due. And I remember, I remember I'm riding weird. I mean, here you go with the, with the busy head syndrome. So I'm riding down the road, and I'm thinking about the show and what we did and what we could have done and what we didn't do and what we could have done better. And I said, man, I, I don't think that's the name of the fund. I think it's, a, it's kind of an offshoot of the Heritage Foundation, the Heritage Action Fund. So indeed it is the Sentinel Action Fund. No idea, but something tells me that's Peter Thiel at work. I mean, I've got nothing to uh, to prove that or substantiate that other than he's a big master supporter. And he's, I know this for a fact, I know he's being visited frequently by Republican operatives as we speak. I mean, I know this to be true, and, uh, you know, Robert and I talk a lot, and and I just know in that circle of donors and political action committees and coordinating or not that he is getting a lot of knocks on his door or, you know, text on his phone or email or phone calls asking if he's willing or interested in contributing to this candidate or that candidate. From what I'm gathering, he's been more than willing. So to to suggest that um, Teal is a uh, a dark enlightener, you know, an anti-cathedralist, no question about it. I think we've explained him about as well as we can here on the show. He's a scary, smart dude, you know, who, who's not to be taken lightly, but but not to be taken at face value. Is that fair to say? Not to be taken lightly, not to be taken at face value. A, a lot That's of things. The mysterious part. Well, I mean, very mysterious, and um, and I think Larry said it one day, really, really uh, provocatively and well said. Those guys scare me because they can do what they want to do, and there, there's no doubt about it. I'm a guy with uh, several billion dollars in the bank. Um, is financially liberated as he is, and as um as I mean, it appears to me he's somewhat of a renegade, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it appear to you? Oh, a political renegade, yeah. uh, you know, a corporate renegade, um, not a status quo kind of guy. So I mean, I get it. I mean, he would be a guy hard to trust because what is his motivation? 
Is his motivation, is the teal, is the dark and lighteners of the world, is their motivation to replace this cartel with their cartel? I mean, if we believe American government is run by, you know, a um, an elitist organization that acts as if it were a cartel, is the intent just to simply replace that with this? Um, in other words, out with the cathedral, in with the anti-cathedralist. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. Which is our cathedral. Yeah, well, I mean, and here's where I'm willing to go. Um, I know what I've got with the cathedral, and I don't like it. I don't have any idea what I'd get with the anti-cathedralist, but I'm willing to try it. Here's the crux, and here's the quandary. That The quandary is we can't do this without them. I mean, do you See, have an extra five billion? That's you and me a threat to America, according to the people in charge now, right, and the people that are ingrained in government. Well, let me ask you this. We're do, a threat to democracy. Okay, okay but let's, let's stop there because I, I do want to go there. So is Teal a threat to democracy or is Teal the only hope we have to preserve democracy? Probably both. I mean, he probably is. He probably is a legitimate threat to democracy. I mean, he's probably, Teal has the capacity. I don't know if he has the mindset, but he obviously has the capacity to replace a former oligarch with him as an oligarch, right? I mean, he has the ability to um, to influence government in a major way if he so chooses. And I think he's so choosing to do that. The Teal Foundation, some of these other endeavors he's involved in. And, and I, want, I want to say, Teal is kind of the... Um, I mean, he's the guy we've identified. He's not the only guy. I mean, there, there are hundreds of dark enlighteners out there, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley, who are libertarian-leaning, very very, uh, very angry with the establishment. That they're, they're kind of um, they're rebels, renegades, and ragtags by nature. The only difference in them and us is they've you know sold some computer company for $20 billion and uh, at 27 years old and started another company and another. I mean, they, they were the innovators in the tech revolution. And they've you know financially prospered as a result of that. So I think Teal and the Dark Enlighteners, I mean, I don't think there's any question that they could easily take a, um, I mean, if they were cowboys, they're wearing a white hat one day and a red, excuse me, a black hat the next. Um, I've just concluded personally that I'll roll the dice I'll take my chances. I know what I've got with the current elite. I know what I have with the current oligarchs. I know what I have with the cathedral. I've got no clue what government looks like with Teal and Associates in charge of, you know, who gets elected where, when, how. Uh, but but Sentinel Action Fund is going to spend, and I didn't give them any credit yesterday, and I knew it the second I got to the parking lot because I'm driving to wherever it is I go when I leave here, different places, different days. And um, and I said, man, that's not the name of the fund that it's given the five million dollars. Um, because I don't think these guys are crazy about the Heritage Foundation. I don't think they despise the Heritage Foundation, but I think they look at the Heritage Foundation as part of the political establishment. Been around forever, done some good work, but really haven't moved the meter when it comes to executing change in American government. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So the the Senate Leadership Fund cut its number from 15 to 8. They were intentional on spending $15 million on behalf of Blake Masters in Arizona. They're only going to spend 8 The Senate Majority Political Action Committee has been part of cutting that fund. So you got the Senate Leadership Fund and you got the Senate Majority Political Action Committee. Together, they were going to contribute $15 million. They've cut it back to 8 I said yesterday, I got this right, the Democrats are spending 30 nine million dollars on behalf of mark kelly 
in Arizona. Now, all of this will not be in support of Kelly. It will be to tell you that Blake Masters is a dark, you know, he's one of these Peter Thiel acolytes. You need to be careful with those guys and how dangerous they are. And all they want to do is replace the current elite with their, you know, iteration of the elite. Maybe, maybe not. Um, the grand old party's only spending $14 million on behalf of uh, Blake Masters. Um, I'm led to believe from inside sources that that is going to change. There's going to be some encouraging polling data coming out of um, out of Arizona in the next week or so. And you know this. You and I talk on the air and off. Masters, I think, is the guy we need. I mean, I think he is such a complimentary force to the Josh Hawleys of the world, the J.D. Vances of the world. Uh, I think Rand Paul needs help and company. I mean, I don't think they, they line up with Rand Paul on every issue. But when it comes to China, immigration, trade, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that that could be the Calvary. If I'm Rand Paul and I feel like I've been on an island since the day I got to Washington as a non-interventionist, non-globalist Republican, um, I all of a sudden see the Calvary coming. And I'm highly interested in how Rand Paul, Rand Paul's an old hand. I mean, these are all new bucks. You know what I mean? They, these are guys outside of the normal career path of uh, becoming a politician. Rand Paul's father was a member of Congress. I mean, it seems that's the way, you know, it's kind of the politics has become America's family business. You pass it along to your daughter, your son, your your grandchild, um, just the nature of the way we, we've done it in America. But Rand Paul got there in the old-fashioned way. He inherited it. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, that's right. just kind of the way American politics. It is a little bit aristocratic, uh, very, very nepo- you know, a lot of nepotism in American politics. But here comes the Calvary. And I think even Rand Paul goes, I don't know about these guys. I mean, I'm not sure what they're coming here for. And with and about, um, but but here's my encouragement, and then we'll take our first break. If and we talked yesterday about Trump, and I didn't get much of a response on that, but but let's do this. I thought about this question a little bit deeper. So you got Trump here. Trump is the the godfather of the America First movement. He will always, if we ever build a statue to commemorate the the America First political movement, Donald Trump will be that statue. No question about it. Like him, love him, hate him, despise him, um, narcissism and all, you know, bombastic and all. Um, he deserves to be the godfather of the political movement. Are we willing to take a, a, a cadre of individuals? In other words, Trump wins, Masters, Vance, and the others don't, or Trump kind of rides off into the sunset, becomes the king maker, so to speak, Vance, Hawley, uh, Masters, uh, I don't know about Oz, Herschel Walker. Uh, you see where I'm headed? I mean, mm-hmm. to, to DeSantis. I mean, to me, that's a much better bet to make. Let's get DeSantis lined up. Let's get J.D. Vance elected in Ohio. Let's get Blake Masters elected in Arizona. Let's get, uh, I, st- I still have my reservations about Oz, and I can't put my hands on it. It's the dumbest reason imaginable. His name is Dr. Oz, <laughs> and he's running in Pennsylvania. I mean, if Dr. Oz ran in New York, okay, Dr. Oz in California, okay, um, but Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania's Republican base is still very, very blue-collarish. And and maybe they vote for Dr. Oz, but it just, that, that's just the relatability factor in that election concerns me. Now, the polling, I don't trust, but but something tells me that the guy named Dr. Oz is going to have trouble convincing blue-collar, working-class Republican voters to turn out in record numbers, which is what will have to happen 
if he is to be successful. That is a weird reason because the polling says that Oz has a better chance in Pennsylvania than Masters does in Arizona. I mean, if you really trust the polling, I don't trust the polling, and, and I would argue that you shouldn't either. But if you trust the polling, Masters is more of an underdog in Arizona than than Oz is in Pennsylvania, but his name isn't Dr. Oz. And that's just, I mean, that, that's an odd request of the voter. Hey, what are you doing today? I'm going to work, then I'm going to vote for Dr. Oz. You know, I'm going to the muffler shop, but I got 16 jobs to do. I'm going to the coal mine. I'm going to the construction <laughs> site, but I want to make sure I get them. I want to make sure I get off in time to go by and vote for Dr. Oz. Just something sounds weird to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it is or not. And once again, if it were a Senate seat in, or excuse me, a House seat in San Francisco, you know, or Burbank or Los Angeles, I, I, no problem. I mean, of course they'll vote for a guy named, they'd vote for him just because his name <laughs> was Dr. Oz. Um, I mean, can you imagine voters in Los Angeles? Uh, there's no way they'd miss a chance to go vote for a dude named Dr. Oz. But, but hey, honey, I'll be home a few minutes late. Uh, we, we closed the coal mine at 430, but I'm going to run by and vote for Dr. Oz. I mean, I think I, <laughs> that just sounds odd to me. We shall see. And I don't know if it's the name for me with him. I mean, it is a little weird and whatever but he's but, a quirky guy but i just don't know a lot about him i don't know if he really ultimately believes in what i would want him to believe in as my senator that's very well said take a break we'll be back in just a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number someone's on the phone let's go there jt in florence good morning sir you're on the air hey guys good morning to you uh question for you so generally speaking in the midterms the power the president's party uh, always loses seats i think always maybe a strong term i think it maybe didn't happen once but uh, that that's generally true right that is correct and sometimes it's an absolute you know avalanche <laughs> um so when these polls are are coming out and and generally speaking the very very common polls only uh, focus on registered voters or or basically anyone uh, a much wider net versus likely voters and such like that correct correct so how has um, when I do look at the polls and I look at the RCP average the real clear politics average and I look at which ones are saying what has Trafalgar your the guy you know um, what's he been saying because and and has he been trending better? And from my understanding, he has. But I just want to know because you keep up with this uh, much much more than I do. Has he been more accurate continually since 2016 than these others? Are these other polls, including people who probably aren't going to get driven to the polls in November, and and does the inflation report that just came out change what the defining issue is going to be? Cause I think, you know, there's, there's always a competition of what the defining issue for the moment is going to be. And I think the idea was inflation would have calmed down by now and pretty much everybody would have thought it would have eased up if you keep doing what you're doing, raising the interest rates. But um, it's, it's very stubborn as of this last report, basically saying it's not going anywhere. You just committed to spend you know, more money over another 10 years. So why would it? But um, just curious on your thoughts of what the defining issue is going to be. I know what they're trying to, what each party's trying to position it as. Is the Republican Party or anybody who's challenging a Democrat ready to make it something other than 
threats to democracy, and, and are they doing a good job of that? Thank you. Thank you, Jake. You appreciate that. That's probably the most interesting question you could ask um, about the polling. Who's right? Who's not? Why are they right? Why are they not um, correct? I'll give an example. I told Rev this Monday. I've actually got in my hand when JT's talking. I grab uh, the Trafalgar Group, the lessons of Trafalgar, superior strategy, innovative tactics, and bold leadership can prevail even uh, uh, over large numbers with uh, even over larger numbers with greater resources. The Biden approval nationwide survey, hot off the press from Monday. I've got it in my hand. September 2022. It's 11 pages long. It has generic Democrats, excuse me, generic Republic. Let's do this. Page two. You ready to talk about cross tabs? I'm um, conducted 907 through 909 of 2022. 1,081 respondents, likely general election voters. Response rate, 1.44%. Margin of error, 2.9%. Confidence rating, 95%. Response distribution, 50%. Methodology, the Trafalgar Group polling methodology is confidential information. Uh, First ballot question, generic ballots. You ready? In general, for whom do you plan to vote in the upcoming 2020 2020 congressional election? The Republican candidate, 47.9%. The Democrat candidate, 42.2, undecided, it's 9.9. Go to the second page. How do you think Joe Biden is handling his job as president? Strongly disapprove, 50.2%. Disapprove, 4.6%. Approve, 18.2%. Strongly approve, 21.1%. That's a 39.3 approve, a 54.8 disapprove, 5.9 no opinion. How do you think Joe Biden is handling his job as president uh, with Democrats? 43.7 strongly approve, 29.7 approve, 17% of Republicans strongly, excuse me, 17% of Democrats strongly disapprove. That's a 73% approval rating for Democrat voters. Guys, if that ain't 80, they got trouble. Trust me. I mean, I don't care what CNN says. I don't care what MSNBC says. I don't care what talk radio says. If that approval number of the same party is not north of 80%, there are cracks in the armor. I mean, you've got big, big problems. Go to the, I mean, you would expect this number to be uh, amongst Republican voters. What do you think? Um, uh, what do you think of the job Joe Biden is doing as president? 80% strongly disapprove, 5.6%. Um, it's kind of interesting. 6.8% of Republicans say they approve of what Joe Biden is doing. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of a, a polling nuance, so to speak. Um, and then you break it down with party participation, uh, age participation. I won't bore you to death with some of these stats. Um, uh, you got independents. What do independents think of Biden? Strongly disapprove, 52%. See, Biden's approval with independents is only 50, excuse me, 35%. I mean, that number's got to be north of 40. It's just got to be north of 40. And then you've got ethnicity participation. You've got age participation. You've got party participation. So uh, Robert and Trafalgar asked, I mean, they, they reflected the national uh, the national voting base. 39.3% of all the people they asked were Democrats. Only 35.5% are Republicans. The point I want to make is this. And then you got gender participation, 53% female, 46.7% male. The entire summary on Trafalgar's 11 pages, generic, um, generic Republican, generic Democrat on the Biden approval. In other words, you're asking a universe of, of voters, what sort of job do they think Joe Biden is doing? If that number is less than 40%, he's done. 
Trafalgar says it is. There's a Quinnipiac poll out. No, excuse me. There's a there's a an Emerson poll out that that I read. It contradicts what Robert says. Robert has generic Republican up four on generic Democrat. Emerson has generic Democrat up six over generic Republican. So there's a ten point swing there. Robert's poll and the um and the survey summary is eleven pages. I showed Rev Tuesday the entire Emerson questionnaire. I mean the summary is two hundred eleven pages long. That's the point Robert makes. You're not going to get to the bottom of any political matter by expecting people to answer two hundred eleven page worth of questions. I mean it's unbelievable how confusing the poll is, but I would argue Emerson was paid by some Democrat operative to get a poll that showed Democrats are generically more supported than Republicans are. And, and you know, you skew the questionnaire. I mean, you, you, you know, you have a, a high percentage of non-respondents. I mean, once again, this poll gets to the bottom of it in 11 pages. The other, I think it might be 221 pages. Something says uh, 221 pages. And, uh, and I showed Rev. I said, Rev, look here. I mean, I had the up on the computer. You, you remember the day I had the, the entire questionnaire yep. and I go through page after page after page, Pakistan, Afghanistan, you know, um, Pakistan. I mean, some of those things nobody gives a rip about, but they wanted to know what your opinion of all that was. People are not patient with pollsters. They're not going to stick around for 211 pages worth of whatever it is you're asking them about. So, so do, do I trust Trafalgar? Yeah, because Kahaley's my buddy. No, I trust it because he's convinced me that Americans aren't, they will participate if you make it efficient, if you make it less time-consuming. Do you have 20 minutes to answer this poll? No, I certainly don't. Do you have two minutes for five questions? Yeah, I'll do that. And you get a much better participation rate, and I think it better reflects the sentiment of where the voters are. Now, to JT's point, um, I don't think Robert would mind me saying this. Yesterday we talked a bit. Um he thinks that the Republican Party right now is over the target. Crime, immigration, and, and inflation. Now, now, Lindsay comes out and has a press conference, and I think Jesse Waters and Lindsay, we may play that this morning. They went at it tooth and nail yesterday about the timing. You know, Lindsay says, I'll never apologize for standing up for the unborn. Okay, fair enough. Don't do it on the day we get a, a, a disastrous um, you know, financial report or, or inflation number on, you know, let let that soak in. Let the, the independent voters. I mean, the Republicans have made their minds up, right? I mean, the Democrats have made their minds up. I mean, that's not a big story. What are the 30% of the middle going to do? Let the 30% of the middle stew over that inflation number. Stop with the, with the abortion talk. I mean, that Roe v. Wade was overturned. The Democrats are trying to create federal legislation, the usurps, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Let them try to federalize election law. Stop with that. Lindsey is a very smart. I know a lot of you have been frustrated with him, and I get that. He has a love-hate relationship with the voters of South Carolina, Republican voters in particular. I get that. I'm as aware of that as you have ever been. I've seen the data. I know where Lindsey is with you. But Lindsey's not stupid. So Lindsay what, is, I don't know. I, I don't have any idea. I, don't, I, I wish Lindsay were sitting here this morning so I could say, Senator, what the hell were you thinking when, when you thought that day was a good day? I get standing up for the unborn. I understand trying to create legislation that disallows an abortion post 15 weeks. But why now? Let's win this midterm. Let's make this midterm about inflation, 
crime and immigration. We win on those points. I mean, some of the Republicans in America today are trying to turn every city into a border town. That's smart strategy. Bus immigrants into New York. Bus immigrants into Chicago. Bus some of these illegal. Fly them into Martha's Vineyard. That's great. You I see mean, that is wonderful. That? It's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. I mean, that's great, great. But can you see Mitch McConnell endorsing that? Can you see Mitt Romney saying, yeah, Ron DeSantis, that makes a lot of sense to put, you know, illegal immigrants on a plane and fly them to Martha's Vineyards. That's not nothing but a photo op. But it works. I mean, the mayor of New York is real concerned about his homeless shelters being at, at the breaking point. So, you know, JT's asking a question. I'm giving a real, real rambling answer. But but do, do I trust the polls to some degree? That There are a handful of pollsters out there that try to get it right. But the majority of these pollsters have been paid to conclude a certain um, conclusion whether it's accurate or not. I know this to be true, guys, because I've done it. I have been a part of paying a pollster, not Robert Cahaley, but another polling company to make it look like I was a more viable candidate for lieutenant governor than I was. I was a nobody from nowhere. I had to hit the street running. And we hired a pollster to go out and gather data to make it look like I was much more viable than I really was. Guess what it did? It made me pretty viable. I mean, it breathed a little life into my campaign. Next thing you know, the Post and Courier picks up a um, a story about a poll done that says this no-count county council member from Florence County, the poor old PD, is leading the charge in the Republican nominating process for lieutenant governor. I mean, that becomes kind of a, a little energy in your, a wind in your sail, so to speak. It happens all the time. I mean, I understand it because I've been in politics for 20 or 25 years. Some of you understand it because you become students of politics, whether you've run for office or worked on a campaign or not. You understand it to some degree. But the casual, the Seinfeld-watching independent voter sees an Emerson poll that says Democrat up six in a generic contest. Well, that's because those Republicans are extreme. I mean, it doesn't go any deeper than that. I mean, you would expect the Democrats to be up six because of those extreme MAGA Republicans. That's the intent of the poll. That's always been the intent of the poll. I think the Republicans pick up between 15 and 25 seats in the House, and I think they end up with control of the Senate 52-48. I mean, that's where I stand right now. Cool. Right, now, once again, um, that's basing a lot on these macros, some on the polling, and some on just kind of an instinctive gut feeling I have about when people go to that poll, they may or may not think sympathetically or, or, or positively about MACA. But they know that stuff wasn't this expensive when Trump was president. They knew it looked like the country had a little bit more bearing about it when Trump was the president. Once again, they're not a MAGA supporter. I mean, They're not a Make America Great Againer. But there's somebody who says, I'll tell you, though, man, I know I made up a word, but you know what I'm trying to imply. I like that. Well, I mean, America, Make America Great Againer. Let's go to the phone before we take our break. Breeze is on the line now. Hey, Breeze. Jim, I will tell you this right now. The, the, the elitists that claim to me that they're Democrats, they are not going to vote Republican. They just, they aren't. It wouldn't matter if Jesus Christ ran because they don't believe in him. But I'll tell you, well, here's the question I have for you today. Let's say that Cahaley's uh, poll is 100% correct. 100% correct. And Republicans still lose. Then what would be your conclusion if that happens? Well, I mean, there, there were a lot of illegal votes cast. There you go. 
Well, I mean, that, yeah, th- 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 thank you, Breeze. But there's no doubt about that. That's still a part of this argument, election integrity. And here's the scary part of this. And I know I said I'd take a break, but here's the scary part of this. We've lived in a nation where you're allowed to question whatever you choose to question. And they're almost criminalizing your and my ability to question the outcome of an election only if you're on one side of the political right. debate. How many times I mean, have they There done have it? been hundreds of questions asked about the 16 election, the 08 election, the uh, the Bush-Gore election, the 04 election. I mean, it's been question after question. And Bush was illegitimate. 2000. Trump was illegitimate. But the second that Republicans and conservatives and America Firsters in particular question the outcome of an election, that they're, they're pulling you over in a Hardy's drive-thru taking your phone, not because you make a damn good pillow, but because you may be a threat to democracy, that's absurd, guys. And if it weren't, if it weren't so scary, it'd be funny. I mean, I could make a joke of Mike Lindell being stopped at a Hardy's drive-through and have his phone taken from him. But that is a totalitarian regime. That's that's communist Nazi kind of stuff. I mean, that's Gestapo. I mean, that's absurd. And I'm telling you, you can make jokes about it, and I can make jokes about it. But that's not that's not funny. That's scary. I mean, when the FBI believes that they have the authority and right and mandate via the administrative state to go out and challenge anybody who may have questioned the outcome of the 2020 election because they don't trust the way it was conducted and they're deemed an enemy of the state at the point of stopping you and having a search warrant for your phone. I mean, the guy makes pillows. He's not a national defense contractor. He's not running Boeing. He's not operating in the name of national security. The dude makes pillows, and he's had a lot to say about not trusting the outcome of the election, and the FBI is going to make an example out of you and I and everybody else, so we don't trust, excuse me, we don't have the right to question elections any longer. That's Gestapo. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Barry in Shaw. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, the only thing I can think about old Lindsey is he's working for his buddy Biden again. You know, he's trying to bail him out once again. You know, we bail on the budget every year, him and old Mitch. So, you know, he probably wants to keep Mitch in power as the minority leader uh, instead of majority because, you know, if we get the majority, he's probably gone as uh, the Senate leader so uh he's probably trying to do that i mean it makes no other sense ken out of the blue Lindsay talks about a 15-week ban on where where did it nobody was even talking about that the polls i think you went over the polls a couple of weeks ago says abortion was like seven or eight he's trying to make it the number one issue same day inflation comes out Lindsay goes on tv i mean it only makes sense that he's working for the democrat he's a uniparty so once again we should have voted him out. We should have just took it and just voted him out. But he will be gone in, what, 2026? Go ahead and get your man right. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. I mean, I've heard that since I've been in politics. Mm-hmm. You know, Lindsey's gone next time. Um, you know, who's he working for? I don't have any idea. Lindsey's too smart and too capable and too savvy to do what he did. I mean, I, you know, I know Senator Graham fairly well. Not, not, We're not intimate, great friends. I mean, I'm not suggesting that. We don't trade text every day and, and talk about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And Lindsey's always been very gracious to me. I mean, he's always been gracious to me when I had a political situation. And, I mean, when I was going through my dark days of politics, Lindsey would check in on me. So, you know, I'm not going to throw him under the bus, but that was terrible, terrible, terrible timing. And I know 
the relationship he has with South Carolina Republican primary voters. He knows, but he's always been able to do one thing. You know what Lindsey's been great at? Avoiding a quality candidate. Avoiding a quality candidate who could raise money. I mean, Lindsey's got his hands full. If a quality candidate stepped up and could raise money to beat him in a Republican primary, and Lindsey knows that, and he's done a phenomenal job of making sure he gets marginal candidates at best who can't raise the funds necessary to get their message out. If he were to draw a good candidate who could raise money, Lindsey would have his hands full, and we may have another Republican nominee and Republican senator in South Carolina. Let's go to the phone. Gary in Chesterfield. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. I was just a little curious on your take. I read yesterday about the people resigning from Horry County Republican Committee. Um, what effect do you think that's going to have on inner fighting among our Republican people that we're going to end up hurting ourselves? Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, I knew Horry County had some issues, and there's always been a divide in the Republican Party in Horry County, as there is in almost every county with this kind of establishment orthodoxy and the, you know, the America firsters, the Make America Great Again MAGA Republican. Um, there's some people having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that the Republican Party has chosen its course. Not everybody, but the overwhelming majority, two of three Republicans in America. It's higher percentage in South Carolina, but two or three Republicans in America have decided that they are America first Republicans. There's not a battle for the heart and soul any longer for the party. That's over. In politics, two to one is an is a whooping. I mean that that's a butt whooping. If you get beat two to one, that's where the party is now. Specifically to Horry County, I don't know. I do know it's a very complicated, controversial county because you still got some of the Ainer Loris areas with with old school, you know, old Southern Republicans, and you've got this infusion of new. Uh, Northern aggressors who have moved in <laughs> to our coast. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone held on during the break and the Reggie Armstrong report. Let's go to the phone. Roger in Coward. Hey, Roger. Good morning, fellas. Um, talking about Lindsey Graham. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I questioned the political timing of what he said, but Republicans in general don't do a good job. Um, of informing what they believe in when on abortion. Yes, a general poll shows that most Americans think that there ought to be access to abortion. But most Americans do not think that you ought to allow abortion up until the time of delivery. And Lindsay's proposal makes good common sense. I mean, there's nothing wrong with his proposal. At 15 weeks, that's almost four months. I mean, if you don't know you're pregnant in four months, then you're too stupid to walk this planet anyway. I mean, and, there has to, and the, the argument that they keep coming up, my body, no, 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 no. That, that argument doesn't hold water when you're talking about another potential individual here alive. Throw that argument out. I, I, I get sick every time I hear that argument. That's no argument at all. His proposal also has the exceptions, two exceptions that everybody talks about, and the life of the mother. There's nothing wrong with Lindsay's proposal. And if the Republicans did a good job of marketing what they actually believe in, they would be where most Americans are. But the Democrats take it and run with it 
And Republicans, I don't know the answer to getting their uh, what they believe in out, <laughs> you know, because the media is against them to start with, most of them. But that's the issue here. Most Americans are where Lindsay is. They just don't know it. <laughs> they don't know it. And that's, so they get there. <laughs> well, that, that's uh, thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. I mean, I totally agree with it. Well, Lindsay makes a very reasonable approach. I mean, uh, uh, proposal. I mean, his approach is very pragmatic, conservative, pro-life, um, and in the political mainstream. But but I think when you are a Republican running for office in the middle of a midterm, now Lindsay's not running, but but he is. Well, no, he's not. Yes, he is. Lindsay's this election will affect whether Lindsay's in the minority or majority. Being ranking member of a committee is nothing like being chair of a committee. So if the Republicans gain majority, Lindsay becomes chair of the Judiciary Committee. That's a that's a real big deal. You know why it's a big deal? Because the committee chair decides what the committee deals with or not. I mean, if it's a bill he doesn't want any part of, he puts it on the back shelf. If it's something he wants to um to see the, the committee work through. It gets it gets expedited much more quickly because the the chairman has discretion as to what sort of bills we're going to put on the kind of the front burner and which ones are we going to put in our back pocket and deal with eventually. So Lindsay is on the ballot, not individually as a candidate, but but he's going to be a ranking member in January or a majority, excuse me, a uh, you know a chairman of a committee, probably judiciary, if um if they were to win. Here's the problem, and and this is to not run interference for Lindsay. But you're not, if, you, if you're a Republican, you're not going to get a, a true accounting of what narrative it is you're trying to articulate. You just aren't. So you've got to accept that. I mean, you're the Yankees playing at Fenway every day. I mean, I've used that analogy. You're, you're the Gamecocks. I mean, imagine if Clemson and Carolina were to play every football game in, in Columbia or in Clemson. I mean, you flip-flop. You play one or the other because that's fair. You know, I mean, who, it doesn't matter who wins. I mean, that's fair. That's the fair way to do it. Why does Georgia and Florida play in Jacksonville? They call that a neutral site. You know what I mean? There, there's always an interest in somebody getting a fair shake. If South Carolina goes to Clemson one year, Clemson goes to South Carolina next year, everybody feels like they got a fair shake. You know, you got a better chance of winning at home than you do on the road. Um, but but in, in the world of politics, as a Republican, you've got to accept that you are playing every game on the road. You're never going to get a fair shake. So, so, so why does Lindsay propose a very reasonable, pragmatic position on abortion? Here's the political mistake I think Lindsay makes. Once again, I don't think the mistake is in the language of his proposal. 15-week ban on abortion with exceptions for life incest, excuse me, rape, incest, life of the mother. Now, those are reasonable exceptions. Those are reasonable terms. We can debate the purest. You know, can say, how about 12 weeks? How about 10 weeks? How about eight weeks? Okay. I mean, that, that's a debate to be had. But the Republican conservative movement in America for the last 50 years have declared this a, a state's issue. The federal government overstepped its bounds. Um, that The constitutional flaw that was the underpinning of Roe v. Wade is what conservatives have argued for since Roe v. Wade was declared a law of the land. So aren't we, in essence, trying to federalize abortion law? as the Democrats are. I mean, the abortion law we want is much different than the abortion law the Democrats want. But but did we accept yes for an answer? I mean, the Dobbs case assigns that power exclusively to the states now. 
So when the Democrats say we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade by legislatively um, making federal, make abortion a federal issue and having federal legislation that says when and where and how a woman can have, can have a baby. I mean, it, that's because Roe v. Wade got overturned. And they know now. now. Now, Lindsay would argue that, look, it doesn't matter that I'm a senator from South Carolina. I don't want any baby. I don't want any babies in California being killed post fifteen weeks, post twenty weeks. I mean, it's still the death of a child. It's just the taking of innocent human life. I mean, that's admirable. That's honorable. But Lindsay, you can't have it both ways. I mean, didn't we say that if Roe v. Wade was overturned and Dobbs became the new standard, abortion laws would probably more be more lenient, liberal in California? I mean, who didn't believe that? New York, Massachusetts, some of these real liberal states. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I want that power to be in the hands of state governments, but I don't want California, you know, exterminating innocent life. It's tragic. It's sad. It's a sin against God. And we should be concerned about it. And you can be concerned about it. But I think legislatively, you've got to figure out a way to balance. Do I want the states deciding it or not? Because once Lindsay says, I want federal legislation, that, that stops a woman's right to have an abortion post-15 weeks no matter where she lives. I mean, we're back in central planning. We're, we're, I mean, we're protecting innocent life. Nobody's denying what Lindsay's intent is. I mean, I think Lindsay sincerely believes that protecting innocent life is important, but he wants the federal government to do it. And we complained for 50 years that we didn't want the federal government to do it. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, I was going to say, Lindsay, <laughs> I don't understand. Well, what we got 3.5 million registered voters in South Carolina. In the primary, Lindsay got 317,000. So he didn't even get 10% of the vote in, in, of registered voters, of people that bothered to vote. Now, he did get 68%, which is 317,000 in the primary. That's the place to beat him. I mean, he got 1.4 almost million votes in the general because we're not going to elect a, a Democrat. But if people don't get out and vote, why? You know, the Supreme Court has just told these clowns this is not a federal issue. And just because Lindsey says, I'm for this, I'm, it's not a federal issue. Why don't we let the people of South Carolina, why don't they put it on a referendum and let the people decide? Is this what you really want? And, and you know, if, if we want to be damned to hell, then let the people decide we just don't go to hell. I mean, as simple as that, because they won't do what we've been talking about for three months. You cannot allow the Democrats to get the nose under the tent because Roe was supposed to be safe, rare, and legal, and it went from safe, rare, and legal to ten minutes after the baby's born. I mean, it, it's almost ridiculous. So let's let South Carolina decide. And until they get this definition of a mother's life, you know, it, you cannot describe that as an abortion if it's an ectopic pregnancy, because the baby cannot grow in a fallopian tube. It'll kill the mother, and the baby will die. So it's a lose-lose. And I don't think God is in for that. So 
we've got to define the terms because people don't understand. They don't care. When you've only got about a tenth, 20th percent of the population voting in elections, people just don't care. And that's the problem we've got. And we're, you know, we we got to get a handle on this. But like I say, the only place to beat Lindsay is in the primary, and then we can put somebody in. And I'm I'm still all in for Mike. Y'all have Thank you, me. Joe. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I understand. I think most of us understand the intent Lindsay has. But but we accepted as a court decision. For California to do what California chooses to do. I mean, it's horrific. I mean, it breaks our heart. I mean, if you're pro-life and you believe life begins at conception, I mean, we can have a legitimate debate about when conception is. But but if life begins at conception and California decides to allow a woman to have an abortion in the third trimester, politically, that's what we've agreed to. I mean, it's tragic. It's horrific. It's terrible. I think it's a sin against God. But it's where the country decided it wanted to be. South Carolina can have restrictive abortion laws. We had a pretty extensive debate last Friday with uh, Philip Lowe, Jay Jordan, and Mike Rickenbaugh about where they believe the state of South Carolina is headed. It's federalism. Either you believe in it or you don't. And if and if the if Roe v. Wade is overturned and Dobbs becomes the new standard, then states have a right via the Constitution and the new court ruling to decide when and when a woman cannot have an abortion. It's not up to Lindsey Graham to decide what happens in South Carolina. We don't want federal legislation that regulates or outlaws abortion. 843-661-0937. Go to the phone, then we'll take our break. Bert in Florence. Hello, Bert. You know, you're saying exactly what I was calling about, because that's been my complaint with him, is that, you know, it it was a federal thing we complained about for 50 years, and now it's a state thing, and what's to make it a federal thing. So the only thing I have left, I believe it was Roger, said uh, if they don't know by four months, they don't deserve to walk on the earth. Well, my personal experience, my aunt was six months before she ever had a clue. Her body went right on doing what her body did, and she had no clue till she was six months. I think she deserves to walk the earth, so I think that was a little harsh. Have a good day. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. Uh, I've, I've not heard of many of that, but I guess I do hear a rare occasion with a woman. Uh, I mean, I've heard of a lady having a baby and not knowing she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, she says she didn't know she was pregnant. Did she know she was pregnant, not want to admit she was pregnant, or did she honestly not know she was pregnant? I ain't going too far down that road because I'd make a, I mean, I make a fool of myself trying to go down some of these other roads. If I try to go down that road uh, of when a woman should know they're pregnant or not. I would make a complete and utter fool of myself. We may play the Jesse Waters because Jesse, and let's give Lindsay a little credit. Lindsay shows up last night on the Jesse Waters show, and he knows that's not friendly fire, right? I mean, he knows there's a kind of a hostile um, television show host waiting on him with bated breath. Now, now, once again, take abortion, take the argument of 15 weeks or not out of the the argument of federal regulation or not. Bad timing. I mean, it's just terrible, terrible timing on the day that inflation has the chance to be once again the center of the midterms Lindsay gets us talking about abortion we don't need to be talking about abortion two months out from a midterm we need to be talking about crime inflation immigration 
the rents to John Brown High. Remember the guy from um from New, New York, York City? Yep. Yeah. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Remember now, Seinfeld is a show about what? Nothing. Nothing. We're a show about everything. We're going to play the Jesse Waters, Lindsey Graham. I mean, our state senator is always in the news. Our senior senator. Um Replace Strom Thurmond. I'm going to imagine that. So Lindsay will probably be there 100 years or so, <laughs> oh, uh, or at least no. serve until he's nearly nearly 100. Mm. But I, And I'm not arguing the merits of his proposal. I'm arguing the timing of his proposal. If you are a Republican and you want to have a successful midterm, the more we're talking about inflation, the more we're talking about crime, and the less we're talking about abortion, the more likely it is that the Republicans win the House and the Senate. I think it's likely they win the House. I mean, I don't think abortion can even goof that up with the conversation, the national debate on abortion. But but the Senate's going to be iffy. I mean, iffy at best. And, and I think, the you know, the, if the conversation is about inflation, the chances increase that Republicans gain control of the Senate. If the conversation is about abortion, the, the odds decrease. Let's shift gears and go to electric vehicles. This is something that interests me uh, in, in so many ways as someone who's spent his entire life in transportation manufacturing, I'm always interested when the private sector is influenced by public policy. I mean, that happens about every day. Um, but I don't know that I can remember a recent example in transportation or the transportation sector where there's been such a commitment made by the federal government to, I don't know, ref, force the consumer down one road rather than another. Joe Biden, President Biden, was in Detroit touting electric vehicles. Um, he's committed $7.5 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure bill for EV charging stations and another $135 billion in some of the Inflation Reduction Act um, to basically incentivize um, the country to advance toward electric vehicles. Ryan Schmelz is with us in our nation's capital. Ryan, what exactly happened yesterday in Detroit? Well, going off of what you just said, where you mentioned all that money for the for EV charging stations. Well, part of the announcement or part of the speech yesterday was the announcement of the first $900 million approved from that infrastructure package to build EV charging stations. And that's going to cover around 53,000 uh, 53, miles uh, across the national highway system. And uh, that should be in about 34 states as well as Puerto Rico. So that's one of the announcements that came out of the Detroit Auto Show uh, speech from the president. Ryan, does these do these EV? I mean, I, forgive me for being a libertarian just for a second, but do these EV charging stations compete directly with privately owned convenience stores? Uh, that's hard to know. I, I, you know, the last call I was on, he kind of pointed out to me that you know he's found a lot of these EV charging stations just at gas stations and truck stops, even in places like Iowa. So yeah, that that's kind of hard to say. Are we headed? I mean, obviously the automakers have made the commitment to transition from, you know, the, the gas-powered internal combustion engine to the electric vehicle. But my, my take is, and I'm not asking you to be a commentator. I know you're a reporter, and I try to be respectful of that. But it seems to me the government is far too ambitious in making this transition. Is that a fair, not criticism, but concern? Well, it's something that definitely gets brought up. Is, 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 is the timeline fair or not? Obviously, it's not overnight. You know, we're not going to be transitioning to all electric by next year. But it is, it's like, you know, we're looking at like 10 to 20 year goals here. But it, you have seen a lot of these these companies, you know, like uh, GM, for example, you know, making an effort to build their own electric vehicles. And even the 
uh, President even test drove a Cadillac yesterday that was an all-electric SUV. Now, like you brought up, cost is one thing that gets uh, brought up as a major concern. The SUV that he drove yesterday was $63,000 around the market price. So one of the issues is, you know, they're putting in tax credits or the administration has a a series of tax credits, both for the consumer as well as the, the auto manufacturing companies to build more electric vehicles as well as manufacture the batteries in America. So we're looking at, you know, $7,000 worth of tax credits uh, for these companies who decide to do that. Has anybody done an analysis, a trustworthy analysis on what sort of um, what sort of load this brings? I mean, if let's say hypothetically in 10 years, 35% of Americans are driving electric vehicles, do we have the capacity on our electric grid to provide energy to charge these vehicles? That, 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 that's a question that, that surely needs to be asked. You know, you see a lot of, uh, it, you know, some issues with certain states that have issues with their grid, and you, then you add more electric vehicles to that process. You know, what will that mean for that grid? It, it, it's a hard question to ask. It's a good question to ask, but it, it's hard to really say right now what that would mean if we were to transition to all electric. Ron, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Absolutely. Anytime. That's kind of an interesting riff. Riff thinks I mess with these people. I mean, he thinks I asked these esteemed reporters on the show just to kind of um, to kind of mess with them uh, a bit. I, I wonder if if you're the only interviewer that that actually asked them questions like that because they're doing this for affiliates all over the country sure. all day. It's part of what they do. Probably twenty five or thirty a morning. You you hear them on the national news, but then during these these times, they they make them available to call the affiliates. So I wonder if like most of the affiliates are like. Hey, Ryan Schmelz, uh, tell us what you know about electric vehicles. And he kind of reads his report and says, thank you very much. Have a nice day. We'll talk to you next time. Yet you ask them, well, what about the electric grid? <laughs> and and they, I don't think I'm real and, popular amongst that group. And, I mean, and they don't really, you know, in that me, case, he didn't have any okay, answer. Okay, let me ask you this. When I ask these appropriate questions, how many times do we get answers? Very rarely, rarely. I mean, we, we hardly ever get answers. The truth is they've not answered this. Here's the deal. The media wants you to celebrate an old codger sitting in an electric car. Now, now Biden looked like the biggest goofball in the history of mankind when he cranks his Corvette up. I mean, he loves the Corvette. Well, the Corvette's an internal combustion engine that produces about 525 horsepower. I mean, it's a supercar. I mean, America makes one supercar. I mean, the, the Corvette historically has been an American muscle car. I mean, there's a romance with the American muscle car. We had the Dodge Charger, uh, the Super B. Remember, I'm being a NASCAR guy here. Uh, Petty and the Super B. And then we had the Mustang. And it is, you know, it's gone through different iterations. It's been a, a supercar, excuse me, a muscle car. And then not, and then, yeah, and then backseat, no backseat, Thunderbird. I mean, when, the Corvette has been um, the, the American experiment in what I'll call, um, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's evolved from a muscle car into a supercar. And um, and it is a rival of Ferrari and Porsche and Lamborghini and, and some of these other um, exotic supercars. So when Biden cranks the um, the Corvette up yesterday and he kind of gets a grin on his face, well, I mean, dudes, I don't care how old you are. I mean, that, that kind of convinced me that Biden's not completely and totally out of it. I mean, there's still a little <laughs> bit there that he hears, uh, and he hears yeah, the rumble yeah, of that engine. got his juices flowing But if a you've got bit. testosterone running through your veins yeah. and you hear that eight-cylinder engine, you know, rumble like it did, I mean, there's something that puts a smile on your face about that. I mean, it just does. I mean, excuse my, I'm going to say this very disrespectfully, and I mean to, chicks don't get that. I mean, there, there are a lot of things we don't get about them. There's some things they don't get about us. When you crank that Corvette up, 
I mean, there's something inside your soul. I mean, there, there's a, a reverberation in your rib cage. You know what I mean? And it mm. makes you go, wow, man. I mean, this is, um, this is pretty sweet, pretty cool. It's not an electric vehicle. I mean, the one thing he was most impressed with in his trip to, to um, I mean, he's there to tout electric vehicles, and he was so enamored with a Corvette. The supercar, I mean, the internal combustion engine that generates 525 um, horsepower and it'll run, you know, zero to 100 and back to zero in like it made one half of one second. He was there, I think. Well, I, mean, it, I think it made him remember he's alive. <laughs> I don't think Biden's been alive. I don't think he's had anything to remind him he's alive. And it was a little bit, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I kind of like smiled at him. You know, mm-hmm. he cranks this car up. I mean, it makes that sound, mm-hmm. and he looks like, holy crap. <laughs> I mean, I forgot what this felt like. I mean, I've been so demented, diminished, and, and out of it. I mean, I didn't know I could experience a feeling like this anymore. I mean, I think I'm president. But, but it, I mean, we, we paraded a guy. We drove a guy. And it's a little bit I mean, the embarrassment that goes along with being a corporate CEO. Groveling, you know, we, we got this old man kind of shuffling around uh, a car show. And the CEO of GM kind of leads him over here. Hey, this way, Mr. President. Yeah, this is the car. Yeah, Mr. President, don't drive that thing too fast. You know what I mean? So that's the, is it bad that I thought when I saw the video of him, I think he drove an electric vehicle a few feet, and I was thinking to myself, man, I wouldn't be standing anywhere close to where he's driving a car. Well, I mean, I think they probably got some sort of um, governor on that thing. Oh, I would hope. I think they've got somebody standing nearby with, with some sort of detonant, you know, just a, a switch that kills the engine. Because uh, he's not the guy you really. No. Well, I mean, but here's the point I'm trying to make. So you're a um, you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, GM and Ford are iconic American brands. No matter the turmoil they've had and the financial hardships they've experienced, and you know m- maybe they got too uh, top heavy with union membership and and uh, you know junior vice presidents and whatnot. They're still iconic American brands. I mean, GM and Ford are still. Um, our, you know, our representation to the world of what we do in the automotive sector. But you, you got a CEO of GM or Ford groveling at the feet of an old demented man kind of helping me get in a car. And you're doing it all about, I mean, these are incentives and tax credits. You know, uh, you just wonder whether they say, like, like the, the CEO of GM goes to work that morning, tells his wife, I just hope nobody gets hurt. I mean, you know, this this guy controls a lot of the money. I mean, he's the president. We got seven point. We got 135 billion here and 250 billion there, and they may pass this Electrification Act. You know, they passed that Inflation Reduction Act, but everybody knows that wasn't an Inflation Reduction Act. And you wonder if his wife says, "You aren't embarrassed to do that." I mean, you worked yourself through the ranks of GM to become its CEO, and all of a sudden you've got the kiss the ring of a man that that might know he's there today and might not. Well, I mean, he controls the purse string. I mean, that, that really, the, the narrative I see, I mean, if, if I'm a citizen of the world and I see Joe Biden sitting in an electric Cadillac running about one and a half miles an hour and everybody running by him, I mean, it's, it's our version of the paparazzi, you know what I mean? And all these corporate CEOs and, and you know, wealthy um, entrepreneurs, I mean, they're all kind of like, uh, well, I mean, we think this guy's out of it, but he does control, you know, our fate and future with the billions of dollars in subsidies and incentives and tax credits he can dole out. If he so chooses, that's where we are. I mean, that's who America is today. And I think the um, the photo op yesterday was a representation of kind of the uh, the commingling that government has, uh, or the private sector has come to depend on from its federal government. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Ken, I'll answer that guy's, the, the question that the uh, your guest couldn't answer. 
or was unwilling to answer? And the answer is no. Of course it is. And of course it's no. Uh, if you flipped a switch right now and, and every, you took every gasoline diesel powered vehicle off the road and converted it over to electricity, it would totally and probably for the next 10 years collapse the entire United States electric grid. There's, there's, there is no generating capacity available except in some science fiction writer's mind unless they have a matter-antimatter generator that can replace all this energy. Most of it's, uh, you know, I know people don't want to hear it, but, you know, 80% of our electricity comes from burning coal, okay? That's just a fact. The rest of it comes from nuclear and natural gas and uh, hydro and some wind, some solar, but, you know, that's not really dependable. So for for the immediate future, and by, when I say immediate future, I'm talking for the next 50 years, we're going to be dependent upon fossil fuels to generate predominant amount of energy on this planet. And uh, there, we, we, can, we, can, uh, we can start to, 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 to move over to, to better forms of generation. If, if we can get the lobbying effort to get off the backs of the nuclear power industry and let them start phasing in uh, next generation safer nuclear reactors, uh, modular reactors, that can be set up in small communities, even even towns as small as Florence or Conway or places like that, where they're in some cases they're using uh, backup um, or not backup, but alternative natural gas generation. You could replace that with a modular, a modern type of mo- modular nuclear reactor uh, that that has the ability to add on to as the population grows. Uh, a modular reactor can have a, another module brought in and connected to it and increased its power generation. So that combined with getting getting vehicles off of gasoline or diesel and getting them on something like natural gas, which is... That was kind of the Pickens plan. plan. I mean, that's all Boone Pickens has passed away, but the Pickens plan was um, kind of replacing internal... Com- not the internal combustion engine, but, but the power source from gas and diesel to natural right. gas. That was always right. uh, a big center. Now, he had a big interest. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. I mean, he owned Mesa Energy. He <laughs> was a big natural gas producer. I mean, everybody's up to something. I mean, who do you align with? I mean, nobody goes to Washington to lobby because they're fully patriotic in their you know belief in a better America. But it's all about, I mean, if you go to Washington to lobby, you're going there to, do, to with a task at hand. I mean, it's not you're not there altruistically. You're not there to make America a better place. You're there because you've got um, something you need. And Boone Pickens appeared before Senate uh, Senate committees, energy committees, uh, proposing the Pickens plan, which the centerpiece of that was, you know, an evolution from, not, not from the internal combustion engine to the battery-powered vehicle, but rather the burning of natural gas as the primary source of fuel. Let's take a break. I don't want to get too far behind. We're already here a bit. But Tom Friedman, who wrote The World is Flat, has been probably as green as anybody is beginning to, I guess, have a come to Jesus moment and realizing how absurd some of the Biden energy policies really are. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Verd in Marlboro County. Good morning, Verd. Good morning. It's been a while. Uh, Ken, uh, earlier we were talking about the uh, designations of the leadership over in Norway County. Well, that's probably the best thing that ever happened to the South Carolina GOP. Uh, two years ago, uh, with Lynn Woods, I'm sure, financial help and expertise, uh, 
they went in a group of people with his uh, leadership and took over the Ulrey County GOP and also the Greenville uh, GOP, the top two, biggest two parties in the state. And it's been nothing but a descending mess ever since they took over. Uh, when we had the state chairman's race last year in 2021, uh, of course, Lynn Wood was running against Drew McKissick, and it was nothing through the whole campaign, but just disruptions by that whole group, both in Greenville and in Ulrey County. But when we had the election, uh, and they keep claiming this stuff, we the people, well, Lynn, uh, Drew McKissick defeated uh, – Lynn Wood, 685 to 239. I think some 70-something percent of the vote that uh, Drew McKissick got. Well, that was We the People. That little minority group that's been nothing but an ascension for the last two years, they are not We the People. We the People is the majority of people that voted that represented uh, parties all over the state. Bird, what but was anyway, the argument about? What was the majority? I mean, the, I mean, I've heard the dissent. I've heard the disagreement. I've heard the, you know... Uh, the, the the divide but what is it about i mean and ori county's a big deal in state politics i mean it's a, like you said it's one of the two biggest republican parties in our entire state what was the divide about ken really truthfully i'm not sure the divide lynn wood came up here from georgia where he had always voted democrat and, and a lot of us from early on believed that he was sent up here to try and destroy the republican party which is what they really tried to do Forty-six parties in the state, and the two biggest parties, Greenville and uh, of course Horry County, is the largest Republican county in the state, and uh, they basically took it over. But uh, in in the divide in Horry County, it was thirty-five for Lynn Wood and thirteen for Drew McKissick. Well, within a period of two or three weeks, uh, roughly half of that thirty-five had already deserted that group. You know, so their support had been failing almost from uh, nearly a month or two after they had already taken over. And then, of course, in Greenville, uh, the big thing up there was uh, uh, Jeff Davis, who has been a thorn for about 20 years on the Sacramento GOP. They formed something called the My Sacramento GOP, which has basically never been anything. They really thought that they were going to be able to take over the whole state with this new party that they tried to form. Well, all it did was uh, in the last quarter, uh, the Sacramento Republican Party at our executive committee, we barred Jeff Davis, who was chairman of the second largest uh, party in the state, Greenville. He was barred from coming to any more meetings from uh, the Sacramento GOP because he continually just interrupted everybody in our state meetings and stuff and just would not uh, would not obey by Robert's rules of order. So, you know, he has been removed from even going to any of our meetings. So, uh, and the other two, the two people from Horry County, every meeting they went to, they had some kind of disruption that they tried to do, and they never got anywhere. They only they only had two votes through the whole thing. Interesting. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate that. Um, you think you see drama on a soap opera? Join a Republican <laughs> Party, especially one like Horry or Greenville, who have a lot of influence in our state's politics. Um, it, it's it's always an episode i mean it really is and those guys and ladies do phenomenal work on behalf of the party but there's always turmoil <laughs> i mean I, i've never been to one that there wasn't some sort of turmoil going on back in a minute hour number three on a thursday morning eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number i want to be serious for just a second because a lot of these issues you can take a side i can take a side we can argue about you know um whether lindsey graham made a good decision I mean, I don't think he did. I think Lindsey's right on the issue. I think the timing and, and, and you know, allowing now the uh, – I mean, the Republicans can't say any longer that we don't want it to be a federal issue. 
I mean, Lindsay's introduced it or reintroduced it as now a federal issue. I understand the mindset. I understand a pro-life Republican believing that he has a calling or is led to try and save innocent life in California. But we kind of made a political deal, didn't we? I mean, didn't we want Roe v. Wade overturned so that authority could be returned to the states? Well, you can't have it both ways. Um, unless you're going to move to California and run as a senator in California and try to lean on and lobby uh, some of the General Assembly there to pass, you know, uh, more restrictive abortion laws. But as, as important as abortion is, and it is, I mean, I think it's a matter of morality. I think it's a matter of the conscience. I think it's a matter of, um, of faith. I mean, I think there's so many that there's so many ah, human instincts that are intertwined in the issue of abortion. How do you get where you stand on abortion? I mean, that's kind of a personal journey, right? I mean, I, you know, we would all agree to that. I mean, you know, Rev and I may not have the, exactly the same opinion of abortion, but we're going to be close. I mean, we are. We're going to be fairly close to one another. If Rev were asked to write a, um, you know, a thousand-word essay on what he believes about abortion and I were, we're not going to use the exact words and terminologies, but but we're going to be pretty close in in what we believe and what we stand for and what we perceive to be right and wrong. And, you know, I think Rev now is not politically naive by any stretch. He accepts some of the politicking of abortion. Sure. Don't like it, but we accept it as being reality no because it's a law and we, we live in a nation of lawmakers. Some of the lawmakers we like, some we don't like, some we think do a good job, some we don't think do a good job. But but I want I want to sit I want to kind of I don't know Rev zero in on, on a couple of issues that we better get right. Once again, um, abortion is a matter of morality. And I get that some would argue, well, I mean, the nation has to be moral. I mean, the government was set up for moral and just and ethical people. And once we lose sight of morality and ethics and, and what's right and wrong, we do begin uh, to decline. No, no arguing that. I mean, I do believe that we have to have a moral compass that leads us um, – in a positive way. And, and it does affect policy and change and, and whether we're going in a good way or a bad way. But there are two issues right now that I think are the the central issues that will define the next hundred years and what sort of America we live in. And it won't be abortion. I mean, I think there's a just God and I think God holds us accountable. No question about that. But there's two issues I believe are, are just supreme to all the others. One is energy and the other's debt. I mean, th those are the two issues that we better get right because if we don't, we're going to live in a lesser America. Your kids, my kids, grandkids will struggle to maintain the standard of living that we've been fortunate to enjoy. Um, my, I have good days and bad days. You have good days and bad days. The majority of us have good days and bad days. But as an American, our worst day is better than 99% of the rest of the world. I mean, the opportunities you're afforded, uh, the, the mistakes you made are because you had the opportunity to make those mistakes, right? I mean, you know, when Rev does something stupid, I do something stupid, you do something stupid. Most of us do it because we had a right to do something stupid. And then you suffer the consequences. And you suffer the consequences. You reap the benefit of making of making good decisions. But when, when Biden is, is, you know, kind of parading around in an electric vehicle, and there's kind of a photo op, and it looks silly. It, it is silly. I mean, it's real silly to believe that we can transition from fossil fuel to renewable energies in 10 years. I mean, that's farcical. That, that's fantastical. I mean, that's ridiculous and absurd. But more than anything, take, take that frustration out of the equation. Take that uh, emotion out of the equation. It is a threat 
to our national security. It's a threat to our path to prosperity. We've got to be more serious about energy policy. Uh, you know, the, the argumentative nature of, you know, well, the greenies and the tree huggers and, the, you know, the fossil fuel industry. I mean, all of those have a, a political value. But this is a serious issue, guys. I mean, if we allow the Democrats to try and force this renewable energy plan, this, this green dream, this mindset that we can honestly pursue energy in a way that doesn't include fossil fuels and do it in 10 years, that's dangerous. I mean, that's a threat to America's um, superpower status, unlike any other. Tom Friedman, who is no friend of a Republican, Friedman wrote the book, The World is Flat. I would argue that uh, Friedman, he wouldn't say he is, but I think he's a, um, a liberal intellect. Now, he would argue, no, I mean, he's a fair-minded, you know, journalist. No, I think, I think, I think you know, Friedman is a smart man. He's a very educated man, and he's a knowledgeable man. I mean, he understands the world, but, but he, he's bought into this liberal mindset. Um, he's convinced that we're cavemen, we're, we're, uh, we're NASCAR fans, and we're hayseeds and hillbillies and rednecks, and, you know, he's kind of crossed the line from being uh, a respected journalist to somewhat of a political activist. But Friedman has said recently some things that interest me a lot. I want to read verbatim something he said um, about energy. This is his words, not mine. I wish I could say for certain that Putin will fail, that the Americans will outproduce him, and I wish I could write that Putin will regret his tactics because they will eventually transform Russia from the energy czar of Europe to an energy colony of China, where Putin is now selling a lot of his oil at a deep discount to overcome his loss of West, Western market share. Yes, I wish I could write all these things, but I can't. Not unless the U.S. and its Western allies stop living in a green fantasy world that says we can go from dirty fossil fuel to clean renewable energy just simply by flipping a switch. That's very interesting to me because that's Tom Friedman accepting somewhat of a responsibility as a spokesperson to the general public about where we stand on energy. Once again, abortion's an important issue. Taxes are an important issue. A lot of these others are important. Um, what if we don't have adequate energy? I mean, what if we allow the Democrats to convince the majority of Americans that this is doable, this is achievable, that it's not a pipe dream? There is a realistic way to get from fossil fuel-produced energy to renewable energy in a 10-year span that doesn't disrupt nor destroy certain facets of our economy. See, Ryan Schmales is a good guy. Ryan Schmales is a good reporter. I'm sure he is. I think he's sincere in wanting to give um, kind of an accounting of what happened yesterday in Detroit. Guys, that is a photo op, but it's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. It is a, it is a belief or it's trying to institute or instill the belief that we can genuinely relieve ourselves from burning dirty fossil fuels. Now, that dirty word is Friedman paying his, um, his dues to the, to the liberal. I mean, why do you put the word dirty in there? Well, you got to, man. I mean, you got to make sure you know where uh, they know where you're coming from. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, if we want to get oil and prices down to a reasonable low level to power the U.S. economy and at the same time help our European allies escape the vice grip of Russia, while we also accelerate clean, clean energy production, call it our energy 
um, triad. We need the transition plan that becomes balanced, excuse me, that balances climate security, energy security, and national security. But the most important factor for quickly expanding our exploitation of oil, gas, solar, wind, geothermal, hydronuclear energy, is giving the companies that pursue them and the banks that fund them the regulatory certainty that they in, that if they invest billions, the government will help them quickly build the transmission lines and pipelines to get the energy to market. U.S. energy policy today has to be an arsenal of democracy to defeat Petro-Putinism. Wow, okay. In Europe, by providing desperately needed oil and gas to our allies at reasonable prices so that Putin cannot blackmail them, it has to be. Our energy independence has to be the energy of our economic growth, the engine of our economic growth that will eventually, hopefully, provide the cleanest energy available, but right now must rely on affordable fossil fuel as we transition to a low-carbon energy or low-carbon economy. Well said, Tom Friedman. For a guy that says a million things that I disagree with, 999,999, extremely well articulated. And I'm telling you why he's saying this, because he understands how important it is. He understands how devastating it would be if we give up on fossil fuels in the way the Democrat Party and the green energy activists want us to give up on fossil fuels. I mean, this will impact our lives as long as we're alive. I mean, if we give up energy independence, if we give up energy dominance, if we forsake our ability to produce energy, we will transform this nation from a preeminent superpower to a very secondary um, uh, global actor. And, and Joe Biden is going, I mean, once again, guys, this is not Biden. I mean, th- this is the Obama acolyte. I mean, th- this is the, uh, the formation of something within the White House that is dangerous, extremely dangerous. And, and look, uh, you know, get real country here for a second, Rev. Mm-hmm. We cut fool a lot. I mean, we joke around. I mean, we, we made an argument yesterday that the reason this, um, this latest space vessel hasn't made its way into orbit is there's too many transgenders working on the team. You know, it's still sitting on the pad. I actually went last night. I told Rev during the break. I went to NASA's website last night and read more than you care <laughs> to know about their plan for diversity. Now, NASA has obviously bought into the wokeism. Um, NASA now recognizes you by whatever pronoun you choose to be recognized oh, as. Good. Yeah, I mean, that's important. Yeah. Um, all I'm saying is we've got the most diverse team of engineers, designers, and, and aerospace experts we've ever had at NASA, and the damn rocket's still sitting on the pad. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I hate to be simplistic in my take on this, <laughs> and, and that probably is an insult to Friedman's you know, uh, essay or, you know, uh, argument on, on energy, but th- this is serious business. And, and, and a lot of this is nuanced. It's, um, it's, uh, it's entertainment. I mean, we, we try to entertain here on the radio. We try to find a topic or a subject and, um, and, and joke about it and laugh about it. There's nothing to joke about here. There's nothing to laugh about here. Joe Biden is, is, a, is a man in, in, in the winner of a political life. I mean, nobody can argue that. I mean, I think he's in serious cognitive decline, but I don't know that. I mean, I'm forming an opinion to form an, I'm making an observation from afar, and you got to be careful doing that. 
I mean, the way he walks, the way he talks, the way he handles himself, his mannerisms, it's obvious he's not who he was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago for that matter. But, but he is the president. Some believe he got elected. Some don't believe he got legitimately elected. Um, but when you start mucking around with how we power our economy, and I think Friedman is really coming to grips with that. I mean, Friedman is a liberal. Friedman is an academic. Friedman is a, an intellect. Friedman is going to line up with Biden and the Obama acolytes 95.5% of the time. But, but this is the issue that I think he sees so critical, so important, so threatening to our standing in the world that he just can't let it slip. He can't let it go by with offer, without offering a, a fairly reasonable and objective. When I saw Friedman's article, I said, well, what's he got to say now? I mean, I'm sure it's cheerleading for the left. And I read the first, you know, chapter or the first sentence or two. And I said, wow, let me read uh, the rest of this. And he believes, uh, as I do, that this, I mean, it's a geopolitical event. Don't misunderstand. I mean, America trying to become the greenest economy in the world is a geopolitical event. A major geopolitical event. Is it like a war? I could argue it is. I could easily argue that our desire to transition unrealistically to a to a to a, to an economy that has been historically f- powered by fossil fuels to one that is not it is a geopolitical event like a war. The preeminent superpower in the world, the most successful economy ever seen to mankind, is deciding right now, right before our very eyes, that it's not going to power itself as it always has. It's going to try something new. I mean, we're not ordering onion rings instead of fries. We're not drinking a a Bud Light instead of a Coors. We're not a Gamecock fan or a Tiger fan. We're deciding right now how we're going to power our economy for the next hundred years, and we've got people who really don't understand what they're doing in charge of it. And that's scary, guys. I mean, that, that is an amazingly important proposition that I don't think we're considering what, what the results and arrest and residue uh, will be of. It's kind of funny to watch Rev every now and then. About once every two or three weeks, he'll look at me like, stop. I mean, I, I, stop that. I mean, this is supposed to be fun. Right. I mean, this is entertainment. Didn't you know that? I mean, this is all about ratings and entertainment. No, and it is. And most times we are. But this is an unbelievably serious issue that we are on the pathway to getting unbelievably wrong. Mm. And if we get this wrong, guys, nothing else matters. If we don't have the power to, to energize this great economy, this great nation, you will watch it fall in a way that, I mean, it'll be at warp speed. I mean, we're already seeing rolling blackouts and discouraging. I mean, turn your thermostat to 78 or 79. Uh, they're convincing people that they need to be giving. I mean, I've even said, what would Jesus do? I mean, Jesus would turn his, I mean, you know, to the Christian folk in California, you know, Jesus would turn his thermostat to 78. Jesus would stay drilling oil well, man. I mean, burn some coal. I mean, you've, you've got this abundance of natural That's resources cool. that has been reliable. God we've gave got you te- these resources. I mean, we've, we've got technology that has allowed it to be as clean as it ever has. And, you know, uh, Joe Manchin, I mean, I, I saw this interview with Brett Baer. I don't know how many of you saw this or not, but Manchin was uh, with Brett Baer and Manchin believes he's going to get stood up left at the altar by the Democrats on this, you know, I mean, he voted for the Inflation Reduction Act that really has um, reduced inflation uh, <laughs> since we had the largest, the, the biggest, uh, the, the highest cost of food per capita in American history. 
I mean, the cost of food went up 13.9% year to year. Uh, so, so we've got, I think 79 was a reading similar to this. Um, but Manchin now is depending on Republicans to basically streamline permitting. Nuclear energy, mm. um, coal-fired. I mean, he's from West Virginia. They made him a deal. Joe, if you'll go along with this, we'll help you get some of the permitting streamlined in, in fossil fuel industry. Nobody believed that. I mean, Manchin didn't even believe that. But you know what he believed? He believed the Republicans would bail him out. Because, because the Republicans understand how vital this is. And, and I just I want us to understand, guys, this is a geopolitical event that, that I believe is, is very similar in nature to a country declaring war. We're just kind of declaring war on ourselves. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> uh, when, you, when you put it like that, man. Uh, Charles in Florence. Hello, Charles. Good morning, guys. Um, I'm just wondering if, and nobody seems to speak of the de- private development of, I don't want to say energy, but batteries. You know, I know there's been a lot of advancements, but, you know, you look at SpaceX, you know, we they kind of reimagine how we can go to the moon or go to Mars or whatever. Yet all the money that's being spent, I just wonder how much advancement could be made instead of putting money into companies that use the existing technology. If we would just put that much more money into the uh, maybe a private slash government co-op, you know, just into the development. Because to me, I think we're just kind of stagnating in in advancement. But I'll take it off the air. Thank Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. That's an interesting concept. And once again, I think everything ought to be on the table. But, but we're excluding fossil fuel. I mean, we've committed this country to, to power itself, to generate enough electricity and power and energy without the use of fossil fuel. And that's dangerous. I mean, once again, th- there are a lot of proposals, a lot of concepts. There are a lot of thought leaders out there that have differing opinions. I'm not opposed to renewable energy. I'm not opposed to wind, solar, hydro, nuclear. I'm not opposed to any of that. But right now, we, we, we don't have the capacity. We don't have the ability to make that sort of energy cost competitive. And the government doesn't have the ability to incentivize it. It thinks it does because it's got a Fed Reserve. But at some point, the Fed can't do it. So, so you can't continue to incentivize. I mean, the, 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 the true market forces are clear. Burn coal until others become affordable and efficient. Let's innovate. Let's be creative. I mean, the American entrepreneur will figure this out. But it'll take 100 years. I mean, it's not going to happen in 10 or 12. Government programs never meet the mark. And it's, it's, it's bizarre to me that we're letting this, we're allowing this to happen. And I'm encouraged. Uh, it's, it's weird to say this, but Friedman gives me a little reason to be optimistic. Because Friedman's no dummy. Now, now, the people in the administration may be. But, right. but Friedman's no dummy. And they're I mean, in charge right sure, now. Sure, they're in charge. But Friedman's giving a warning. Look, guys, I'm with you on most things. I mean, I, I'll carry your water. I'll do your bidding. I've proven that. I mean, I'll take the lashes. I'll tell the world how bad Trump is and how dangerous the MAGA crowd is. But you better be careful on this energy because if you get this wrong, this country is fundamentally different in a nanosecond. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office is with us. we got a call. Let's go there, and then we'll get to Mike. Mike in Darlington is on the line. Hey, Mike. Hey, Ken, you're right on the money uh, about the energy thing. And I, I think that uh, you don't need a Nobel Prize in physics or uh, economics to figure out that uh, you're going that uh, this all this spending was going to generate a bunch of it of uh, inflation on the order of what Carter did. And it turns out probably more than what Carter did. 
And the the same thing about the energy. These people don't realize that you cannot print kilowatts and joules and horsepower. You can't uh, manufacture manufacture that with a fantasy virtual uh, projector. You have to actually get the energy. Now, there's been tremendous advances made, and I'm uh, uh, I'm a I'm an advocate of fuel cell technology, and I think that's uh, that's something we, uh, we've had around for uh, decades, half over a half century. But uh, that's just one aspect of it. But you can't get away from uh, from uh, generating electricity and using uh, carbon fuels in the short term because you're going to destroy the economy. And I mean recession, depression, depression. If you continue down this road or if we continue down this road, and it's a horrible thing to see because people are going to freeze, die from heat exhaustion, and uh, suffer from malnutrition because of these insane, literally insane policies. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. I said during the break to Rev and Mike Nunn, you know, I don't I don't like them taking down Jefferson st- uh, statues. I don't. I mean, I, I believe Thomas Jefferson is one of the fundamental figures in American history. I mean, it's complex. It's complicated. I mean, there were a lot of things to like about Jefferson. There were some things to not like about Jefferson, but he's intrinsic in our history. I mean, he's, he's fundamental to our history. He's a he's a part of who we are. But that doesn't that doesn't change my world. I mean, if if every Jefferson statue up today was taken down tomorrow, there's nothing different about my world. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I may Facebook post about it, but but I'm not I'm not altering my lifestyle by any of that. Energy policy directly affects the quality of life and standard of living we've enjoyed in America, and we've had abundant and affordable energy by and large. It's gotten really expensive here lately, but but for the most part, energy in America has been fairly dependable and fairly affordable. And that's been a part of why our economy has um, been as dynamic historically as it has been. The Biden administration has leased fewer acres for oil and gas drilling offshore and on federal property than any administration in history at this stage in their administration. The Interior Department responsible for for signing these leases has leased 126,228 acres for drilling through August the 20th. That's 19 months in office. That is... Fewer than any president in history. In fact, you know what? Every other president, Richard Nixon had the least number of leases signed for the least acreage, and it was 4.4 million. I mean, just kind of mm-hmm. stew on that for a second. From from 4.4 million acres leased for oil and gas exploration to 126,000 acres, they're serious about this. If I thought they were toying around and playing politics and just having fun, like, like some politicians do with some issues, I'd kind of, you know, whistle with them. But they're dead set on believing this nonsense, this garbage, this fantasy of an energy transition that is not achievable. And we, it, uh, Rev said it, we've almost declared war on ourselves. And if I'm Xi and Putin, I would absolutely buy debt that led America down the road of trying to transition from dependable, affordable energy to a pipe dream that may or may not work. I don't mean to drag you into that, Mike. Thank you very much for being here. Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's <laughs> Office. Mike has an opinion, but he's a um, he's a guy not here to talk about uh, that opinion he has on energy. He's here to talk about school safety. And I want to make sure uh, we, we understand how hard the Sheriff's Department is working to address the criminal issue. The first thing you've got to do is admit there's an issue. 
And the sheriff's department has admitted there's an issue. They've assigned and created a, a task force specific to violent crime. And um, and I want to congratulate you, TJ, and everybody out of the sheriff's department for accepting that there is a problem and forcefully trying to address it. Well, thanks. And, and the kudos go to uh, Chief Heidler as well uh, with the police department because it's a joint venture between the sheriff's office and the, and the Florence police. And we think we're going to make a difference on this. Um, I don't. I didn't bring the numbers with me sure. today, but this uh, this violent crimes task force that uh, is assigned to uh, the hot spots and the, the high crime areas in in the county, um, they're making a difference. Um, the the guns, the illegal guns, they're getting off the street. The, the narcotics, the fugitives, the felons that they are uh, rounding up um, is very impressive. And, uh, and we're grateful for their efforts, and we want to continue. We think we'll see some good results from that in the future. Good deal. Laser focus there, but we can't forget the schools. I mean, we drop those precious commodities, call kids off every single morning. We want to make sure they're safe uh, on that campus. You guys are are in agreement with that. Yeah, so, um, you know, school just opened back uh, last month, but uh, school safety is a year-round focus of the sheriff's office. And uh you don't need to look any further than the, the tragedies that we've seen in places like Uvalde to realize, you know, we live in a world where you have to be prepared. Uh, we would love nothing better than to live uh, uh, a Pollyanna world, uh, but we don't live there. And so um, the, the horrors of a, a situation like Uvalde uh, are made only worse by the inept and inadequate responses of some law enforcement agencies. And I hate to throw a law enforcement agency under the bus, but, you know, I, I think it's a fair uh, comment uh, on the situation that uh, the response in Uvalde was just not acceptable. And so, um, you know, we, we focus and we train year-round on school safety. We work very closely with the administrations and the school boards um, and other jurisdictions, um, <clears throat> and um, and we practice and we train, and um, you know our specialized units um, know these schools. They know um, where to go if there's an incident. We know uh, what to do if there's a problem. Uh, and God forbid we should ever in Florence have uh, uh, an event like Uvalde. Um, you know we are training. Uh, to respond. Now, like Mike Tyson said, yeah, everybody's got a a, a, a plan until you get hit in the face the mm-hmm. first time. Um, and uh, a battle plan uh, survives the first shot that's fired, and then you're kind of on your own. But, uh, you know, we, we plan and we train uh, hard uh, with the idea that we have to protect the, the children of this county. Tomorrow, um, we are having what's called a tabletop active shooter um, uh, response. And so uh, any active shooter uh, situation in any of our schools, our churches, or our uh, businesses is going to be an all-hands-on-deck response. Every first responder, every police agency, every law enforcement officer, that's where the focus is going to be. And so uh, we will train tomorrow uh, for an active shooter event around a table with all of the stakeholders, the participants, the school board, the administrators, the the um, the principals, the SROs, our SWAT teams, the city police, uh, 
highway patrol, um, fire, EMS, uh, every entity that would potentially respond to such a horrific event will be around the table. And we will figure out where our soft spots are, what we can do better. And uh, hopefully, um, God forbid, we should ever have one of these events. We will have some experience under our belt to know how to respond better. Mike, I got a weird question. You're talking and I'm thinking about mine goes a million miles an hour. Thinking about Uvalde. Um, nobody knows how they would respond in a, a moment. I mean, a drill's a drill and, a, you know, and, and, and practice is practice. And, um, and then all of a sudden you've got a, a real time event on your hands. Is there any sort of ability to pre-evaluate the, the personality traits or characteristics of someone you're depending on to do a job when that time comes? In, in other words, I mean, I, I've read that Brett Favre was a lousy practicer. You know what I mean? He didn't practice well. If you saw Farr play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, well, there's no way that guy's an NFL quarterback. Goes out on Sunday and just lights it up. I've seen others who practice real well, didn't perform well in the game. Is there any ability for law enforcement to predetermine whether someone has what it takes to react as you need them to in that in that moment of consequence? Well, no, I, not that I'm aware of. I think that's the subjective factor that you know you just can't. You can't but it's got to be considered. Is that fair to say? It's got to be considered. There's no question, and and our officers know from uh, the patrol deputy up to the SWAT commander. If you can't enter a school where there is an active shooter situation ongoing, and go to the fight, gunfire and try to eliminate the threat, you need to turn your stuff in now. That's your job. That's about as clearly said as I've ever heard it said. And that's somebody on that side of law enforcement. But that's part of the job. I mean, as you said, as scary and horrific and threatening and life-ending as it could be, that's what you've signed up for. That's exactly what we sign up for. And um, it's it's part of service. It's part of duty. It's part of sacrifice. Very well said. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate your time. You guys have a great day. We'll be back. In just a minute. One Thursday morning a month, we set aside a, a bit of time for both the Sheriff's Department and the Highway Patrol here in Florence. Um, Brian Lee is kind of a representative of the Highway Patrol here uh, this morning. And um, I want to, for clarity's sake, the train has never run into anybody, right? I mean, the train follows the track. That's right. I mean, the That's train right. has no choice. Yep. I mean, it's big, it's heavy, sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's not but it most times is on the track. Do we have derailments every now and then? So when someone says the train ran into a car, no. I mean, the car got in the train's way. Explain to us um, how important it is to abide by and what, what, what are our obligations? I mean, I'm from the country. So some, some of those stops didn't have the, the arms and the lights and all that good stuff. But walk me through why you think that's an important priority. Yeah, it's, it's so important for people to realize and understand that if you're um, driving down the road and you see railroad tracks, you need to think about a train because you never know when that train's going to come. And a lot of times um, you may not, uh, uh, there, there may be some brush up there, and so you may have to get up there and look. But we just want people to remember it's so important that when you come up to a train track, always think about trains. Always think that there may be a train coming. Uh, this is what I found kind of staggering is, a train that's running about 55 miles an hour, it takes about one mile for it to stop. Wow. Yeah. One mile. One mile. Whether your car is in the way or not. That's right. Okay, something happened here uh, last weekend or over the weekend. Four people tragically lost their lives in a train-related accident. Yeah, and, th and that was such a sad situation, and our hearts go out to those families and the people that were involved in that. But 
you know, the main thing we want people to understand is we want them to know that if they see that train or they come up to a railroad crossing and the uh, crossing arms are down, don't go around those crossing arms. Whatever it takes, don't go around it. Uh, if for some reason they're down and you don't see a train, there's a number uh, on the crossing arm. There's a little blue sign. It usually has a number, 1-800, whatever it may be. Uh, and then uh, when you call that number, you're going to get somebody and they're going to say, where are you at? And uh, at the bottom of it, there's a, a number on there, ABC123, for example. And uh, they'll know exactly where you're at. You can tell them what problem you have. Um, you may even can call 911 or Star HP. But whatever you do, when those crossing arms are down, don't go around those crossing arms. Do we have all the, the, the railroad crossings properly identified? Once again, I'm from the country. And there was some out in the middle of nowhere. And I understand the resources. I mean, I was in government. I understand we don't have the money to do everything we want to do. But, but do you feel comfortable that we have um, adequately identified some of these rail crossings? I believe that the um, uh, railroad um, situation that we have is uh, they have all the signs that they need. Uh, obviously, there may be some other places where uh, they need crossing arms and things like that. People have asked me that before. I don't really have any say in, sure. in how that works. Um, the railroad would be a better uh, place to get that answer. But they try to properly... Uh, put the signage there and allow people to know there's a train. But the most important thing is if you see a train track, um, there may not be a train on that track, but we want people to think that there's a train there. So we want you to be aware of that. Slow down and look before you cross those railroad tracks. Are there some trouble spots? I mean, you guys keep stats and data. I mean, is there is there are there places that, that are more likely to have problems than other places yeah I'm, I'm sure you know throughout the state and stuff like that we have those problems there but there again we just want people to see uh when they have that mindset um I, they're coming up to a railroad track and usually there's a sign letting you know that you're coming up to that railroad track and just go ahead and start slowing down and looking uh you may not see anything or may not hear anything but just start slowing down and think about trains when you see railroad well, that's, that's where i was about to head you brought us some goodies today some fans some koozies stay on track um, see tracks, think train. That's right. I mean, it's a big enough priority for the Highway Patrol that you're going on kind of a marketing campaign to make the public aware. Yeah, we want to just make sure that people are aware of it. We want to make sure that when you're driving down the road and you see those train tracks, just slow down. A lot of times uh, the speed limit may not be reduced, uh, but we want you to slow down and look and make sure there's nothing coming because uh, a train could be coming, like I said, uh, when that train comes through there at 55 miles an hour. Uh, it's going to take about a mile for it to stop. And then in comparison, our our cars uh, versus a train is almost like you taking a Pepsi can or a Coke can and smashing it to the ground. That's what a train will do to your car. Um, real quick, uh, Mike mentioned we're back in school. Have we um, succeeded in making people aware to give a little more room for their morning travel, school buses on the yard, watching out for children. Got about a minute here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've done a, a great job this year. Uh, we want to continue letting people know that it's important. Um, plan a little extra time when you go uh, to school or when you're going to work because you may run into some school buses and things like that. Uh, they're out and about trying to get our kids to school. So just make sure that you're aware of that. And, uh, and of course, if you see those red lights come on, the amber lights come on, the stop arm comes out, just make sure you stop. Uh, don't be in a rush because those kids are trying to cross the street and they're trying to get on the bus. Appreciate you, my man. Absolutely. Good to see Thank you. 843-661-0937. We realize that we interrupt the flow of the show, but we feel it very important once a month 
to let law enforcement come in to the studio, engage the public on some of these priorities and principles of which they're making uh, front and center. So, yeah, I mean, it, we'll get back to politics in the next hour, and we understand it disrupts, but we think it is that important. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Six six one zero nine three seven. So Freehold is from the land of northern aggression. Probably not a real big fan of Thirty Eight Special, who would be known as what a southern, southern rock, rock band, right? Yep. You know my favorite genre of music, southern rock. Like, is it? Yeah. Okay. Almond Brothers, Skinner. CCR. So you've been down here how long? Uh, Myrtle for nine and here for six months. Okay, so good enough. He's been here in about ten years. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a partial member of the club. Yeah. Uh, the Redneck Hillbilly and Hayseed Club of America. <laughs> yeah, but uh, where, where, where does Southern Rock, you know, stack up against, say, Pearl Jam and some of those other bands you... Depends on my mood. Keep in mind, both my sisters were named after Allman Brothers songs, so... Okay. Yeah. So, there you go. he's got some bona fides there. Yeah, good, there deal. Go. good deal. Good deal. Good cool. deal. Hey, um, we talked a lot in the last couple of weeks. We talked more energy and electric vehicle and whatnot uh, in the last couple of days, but we talked a lot in the past two weeks about an issue that I really can't get past. And it's political, it's morality, it's ethics. I mean, it's a lot of different things that go into the decision the Biden administration has has made executively. Um, not not forgiving debt, but transferring debt. Debt doesn't go away. I mean, when someone doesn't pay the bank, it's a write-off. It's still on their books in some way, shape, or form. As someone who has spent his entire life in the private sector, you just don't forgive debt. It's transferred from one uh, category to another, one light item to another. Half of America's governors, all Republicans, um, or asking President Biden to reconsider this. I mean, they're calling it a student loan forgiveness program. So for argument's sake, let's refer to it as the student loan forgiveness uh, program. Chief Strategy Officer with Young Americans for Liberty, Brendan Steinhauser, is with us. Brendan, good morning. How are you? Hello? Sorry, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Hey, Brendan, how are you, sir? So the, the Republicans who are arguing that, you know, this is a, an irresponsible decision by an administration. Um, it allows someone who agreed uh, to enter a financial agreement now not being beholden to that financial agreement. Um, is this, uh, what are the Republicans considering when they're asking the Biden administration to reverse their decision? Yeah, absolutely. They are basically arguing that this is a massive transfer of money from working class Americans, some of whom couldn't afford to go to college, others who chose not to and to go into the workforce. It's a transfer of money from them to people who decided to go to mostly, you know, not just undergrad, but graduate school, professional degrees, people that are going to make 
uh, way more money over the course of their lifetimes than those who couldn't afford to go to college or chose not to go to college. And so it's a massive wealth transfer payment, basically. And to your point, these are people who made the decision to take out the loans. And there was a clear expectation that they would pay them back. And instead, it's looking like they're asking the American taxpayers to bail them out. Brendan, here's where I get frustrated with the Republicans. Stick with me for a second. I want to get your take on this. College, I mean, here's their quote. College may not be the right decision for every American. But for the students who took out the loans, it was their decision. Able adults and willing borrowers who had knowingly agreed to the terms of the loan consented to taking on debt in exchange for taking classes. No question. They borrowed money to receive a service. But there's nothing the Republicans are doing to reform the model of higher education. I mean, when the government became the bank for higher education, you had to expect a distortion of the marketplace and colleges would increase tuition and build dorms with climbing walls and Starbucks and whatnot. Why are the Republicans appearing to concentrate so much on the borrower than the system that has allowed um, these kids to borrow so much money to receive an education that may or may not be commiserate with what they paid? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think you really hit the nail on the head there. This is another example of where government has distorted the market in higher education. These federal student loans are a big part of the problem. It's why we've seen tuition going up and up and up. Um, that's, that's a problem that has not been addressed, so I think you're exactly right. I think to answer your question, you know, it might just be because they see it as kind of easier to explain and maybe even politically expedient to just say, you know, here's the problem we face now, so if you bail these folks out, um, it's unfair. It's taking money away from from this group and giving it to that group. And I think for most people, they can kind of understand that. Uh, it's pretty pretty simple argument. It's it's ripe with unfairness, and maybe they're just making the argument of the here and now. But you're totally right about the the root cause of this problem. Can we throw the good guys under the bus for just a second? I mean, I'm a former politician, a Republican in a state that is um is real red, real conservative. Um, higher education has a very effective lobbying arm. I mean, they do a good job of making uh, political leadership believe that this country would fall apart if it weren't for, you know, 40 or 50 percent of its young people going to college. I mean, is that is that a fair criticism to the Republican Party that they have given in to some of the um, uh, so, some of the donations made by the higher education lobby? I think that probably is fair. I, th- I think that uh, I'm here in Austin, Texas. We see that with the University of Texas the power that they have. My wife is actually from Blythewood, South Carolina, and is a graduate of USC. Um, So she's pretty familiar with, uh, you know, spending time in the state capitol there in Columbia and watching that play out as well. So we know the big schools, the schools with a lot of money, the state schools, um, they have a lot of taxpayer dollars. They have a lot of tuition dollars that they go to growing themselves, reinforcing their own power and prestige in the state. And there's certainly a a very uh, close relationship between the politicians and you know, the various boards of these universities and the lobbyists. So, yeah, there, there's a huge issue there. And, and I think the other thing we have to remember is that, you know, these universities do provide a service, um, you know, that consumers pay for. But the quality of that service has gone down over the years. Uh, and then also, what about the folks that are going to trade school, the folks that are taking advantage of community colleges that provide another service that's often undervalued? In a lot of ways, we need more people to do trade school, community colleges, to learn a skill that they can put to work in the workforce right away. And I think that those folks in particular are the ones getting left out of this whole equation. 
Very well said. I'll interject, hook them horns, and go Gamecocks, knowing that you're from Austin <laughs> and you're well, I've spent some time in Blythewood. Um, what is Young Americans for Liberty? We've had you and several other representatives of Young Americans for Liberty, and I'll say it. You probably won't. We've got about 3.5 million people a year going to college that probably shouldn't. They should probably go in, into some entrepreneurship, apprenticeship, tech college, military. But um, but anyway, we built this system that every young person believes uh, and every family of that young person believes that, they, hey, you better get that degree or your kid could potentially fall through the cracks and uh, higher education is taking advantage of that. But but I'll stop opining for a second and allow you to explain uh, what Young Americans for Liberty is. Sure. Yeah, Young Americans for Liberty is the nation's leading pro-liberty youth organization. We have uh, active campus uh, chapters across the country, but we also have young people, whether they're in high school or they're, they're in the workforce, uh, who support us and who band together to fight for liberty, not only on campuses, but in state capitals across the country. So we work mostly with students around the country, but what we do is we kind of create a, a pipeline to get people uh, fighting back on their college campus or on their high school campus or at a community college. They fight for free speech. They fight for campus carry, the right to defend themselves. Um, we have a lot of great work that we do on campus, but then we also get them plugged into becoming activists in state capitals. Uh, and so we have active, you know, members of the community that go out and, and they push for pro-liberty legislation across the country. Okay. I got to ask you this. I, I told you that was the last question. I got to ask you this before I let you get out of here. My daughter's a sophomore at the Dartmoor School of Business at the University of South Carolina. Um, every professor she has, um, does not seem to align with the views that I have tried to entrench in her in her belief. Um, how do you folks effectively get engaged with young people on college campuses in America when you call yourselves Young Americans for Liberty? Well, the the best way to do that is really when they come into you know when they hit campus as a freshman, uh, we have to identify them. We have to be out there active on college campuses to welcome them and say, hey, if you're someone that has these basic values join us. And so we do what's called tabling on the campus. And we basically sign them up. We have meetings. Uh, we create a lot of social uh, events so people can kind of get to know each other and create, to borrow a term from the left, uh, which I, which is kind of, uh, I don't really like, but it's kind of a funny way to talk about it, but create a safe space for people that believe in liberty, right? Good the day. left is always talking about their, their safe spaces, but basically to band together. And then we, we train these students and we teach them effective ways to make sure that their rights are defended on their college campus and that they can defend the rights of all Americans in state capitals across the country. Good deal. There's a better, there, there's another way. My daughter says the only way to make an A is buy Tesla and, and tell her that you believe in climate change. Tell the professor you believe in climate <laughs> change. Anyway, uh, Brendan, thank you for your time. I appreciate all you do. And, and you're doing a very, very important job in trying to, um, you know, get in touch with these young people at an early age when they are very impressionable and convince them that there's that there's kind of two ways of seeing the world. Thank you very much for um for committing yourself to that task. Thank you. I much appreciate it. Thank you. Brendan Steinhauser, a, a chief strategy officer with Young Americans uh, for Liberty. Kind of an interesting name of a group. And, uh, you know, it's almost like a, a Christian missionary in China. <laughs> you can't have church on the on the street corner. You better gather in the janitor's closet. You know, if you're a Young Americans for Liberty group in higher education, um, I'm I'm a little optimistic that there's been a um, I don't know. We've looked under the hood of higher education pretty extensively. I mean, if people listen to what I had to say, and others were critical of um, the model that existed. But all of a sudden, um, the administration does something as as egregious as try to transfer debt 
that you didn't borrow to your um, column of, of debt. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm kind of with a guy on the radio now. I mean, it, enough is enough. You know, he was talking about three and a half million people going to college that shouldn't go. That sounds insane, but maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe there's something to see here. And I think that energy is beginning to build and fester. And, um, and here's why I know, because some of the mainstream publications are beginning to write repetitive articles about this. I mean, they're, they're beginning to, some of you are in defense of CNN and the New York times in particular have tried to say, well, I mean, it's not really the way you understand it. Uh, well, it is. I mean, it's exactly the way you understand it. Uh, Tuition went up when we allowed the market to be distorted as much as we allowed uh, the market to be distorted. Speaking of debt, remember uh, uh, 30 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago, I said I felt the two central issues in America's, I don't want to say existence, some of that, that's real out there to say, but in our status and our standing as the preeminent superpower on the planet. I mean, I've never lived a day in my life in America that I didn't believe we were the preeminent superpower on this planet. Um, you know, in, in the Cold War, during some of the, um, you know, we'd walk in the hall and put a desk over your, excuse me, put a book over your head and, you know, protect yourself from a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd get that the economics book, and I'm sure it would stop that, you know, that fallout uh, mm-hmm. or that, that um, what do they call it? Uh, the shockwave, mm-hmm. you know, from the, from the burst or explosion, um, the hypocritical shockwave um, from that burst, <laughs> <laughs> that burst or explosion. Or is it the Hippocratic shockwave? Yeah, yeah, anyway, sure, yeah. anyway uh, shockwave. I'm always looking for these words and... Uh, making things running through my <laughs> through my feeble mind. You combine words sometimes. Well, I mean, it's more efficient do. that but, way. But I think we've I think we've nailed a couple. I mean, I don't think I still think optimism. Optimism is a good one. I mean, yeah. I think optimism should be a word. Why would you say hopeful and optimistic when you can say optimism? I mean, I'm That's optimistic. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, free hole. Are you hopeful and optimistic, or are you optimistic? Uh, neither. Okay. I'm not hopeful for well, anything. Optimistic's a, a, a whole new word. Well, I mean, it's a, that's where I'm headed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, soccer mom's a word now, There's right? Optimism and optimistic. Yeah, optimism. They're different. Um, they're different. I mean, you got a verb and a noun, and a, you know, I mean, you got all these. Um, I mean, you know, it's an action word. Yeah. Or is it? Is it? Is it a noun or a pronoun? Uh, what's like again? It. Every time I think of pronoun, I think of NASA. Because <laughs> I read last <laughs> night. Now, now, listen to me. I mean, this is important, guys. We've got a rocket still sitting there. I mean, I know I keep going back to this, but I think this is very, very important. We've got a rocket sitting on the pad. There's been two attempts to launch that rocket. Elon's gone around the world five million times since then. I don't know, and I don't think Elon knows, how many transgenders he has working on his team, how many gays or lesbians he has working on his team, how many, um, I mean, let's do it, because I I could say this because they do. I mean, they got the cue in there. He doesn't know how many queer people he has on his team. It's almost like retro. You know, the old Chuck Taylor Converse sneakers became uh, in vogue again. It's almost like queer is the word again. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There was a long time you they, couldn't they say it. sure to put the Q in there. Now, now, see, Rev's worried now that we're about to get in trouble with the FCC. Mm-hmm. No, it's LGBTQ. Yeah. So, I mean, that they've embraced they've, that this is what the word means. That's right. So, for a long time, it's almost like the word queer has become the champion sweatshirt. When I was in the seventh grade, you had a champion sweatshirt. That was a big deal. Chuck Taylor, that was a big deal. And then all of a sudden, Nike and Adidas and Puma and Under Armour. I'll make a bad shoe. Anyway, they, they all came around. And and next thing you know, you go to the gym and somebody's wearing Chuck Taylor's. Why? Retro. So we went from queer to, you know, all these other words that describe someone who, um, you know, like, like someone of the same sex. And and we're all the way back to, to queer. So, yeah, I mean, the queer is the Chuck Taylor of alternate but lifestyles. Did, but didn't we have somebody say the Q actually stands for questioning? Didn't we have somebody 
call did and tell we? us that? I don't know. Maybe I, I made a mistake. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not. But I, I thought it was I did too. Weird. So questioning would be, you don't really know what you are? So you're, you're asking a question? I, you got me. Let's go back don't and ask, ask me to explain Because this it. is important. Um, Elon's circling the world. He's gotten more satellites up there now. I actually read something the other day where astronomers are mad at Elon because he's got so many satellites going around. I mean, it's like Santa Claus 24-7. You can see them at night sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's like a string of satellites yeah. following one another. Pretty cool. So astronomers are mad because they're trying to observe planets and see what's going on with gases and all that good stuff. How many rings and what's the temperature like? And is there life? And could there be life? And how far away is it? And here comes Elon. So, I mean, it's like a highway in the sky. And here comes eight or ten. Well, I don't know that Elon has ever considered if those satellites have been launched by uh, the most diverse team in America. And historically, NASA's not been real interested in that. Uh, are you a good engineer? Are you a good aerospace designer? Are you a good astronaut? Are you smart, are you competent, diligent, prepared, educated? All those qualities and characteristics that you and I would find. Uh, I mean, if I were an astronaut and they came to me and said, hey, we're going to put you in a, in a rocket that was designed exclusively exclusively by transgenders, um, gays, and, and lesbians. And I would ask, uh, how good of engineer? I mean, I don't care. I mean, it doesn't matter to me who builds it. Uh, are they engineers? Are they designers? Are they aerospace qualified? Uh, we don't know, but they're real diverse. So NASA, I mean, I read this last night trying to find out exactly who's on this team that has failed yet to put this rocket in, in outer space. And I can't find that, but I did find that about a year and a half ago, NASA agreed, uh, excuse me, two and a half years ago, NASA agreed to allow you as an employee of NASA to declare yourself whatever pronoun you choose. So that, you know, I mean, that, that should make you more confident in um, that rocket getting off that pad into outer space, landing on the moon, where it's, but it has nothing to do with where you went to engineering school, uh, what your qualifications are in aerospace. It's more about, you know, the pronoun of which you'd rather mm. be referred to. Um, <laughs> that's kind of a, anyway, it's just, um, know. you know, when, when you think, but I mean, think of it, when you think of NASA, you think of smart people doing very competent things. And, and I, all of a sudden NASA has become a government or government agency that is falling into the trap of wokeism 101. Let's go to the phone. Davis and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Davis. Good morning. Ken, you uh, had an analogy earlier this morning about if Clemson played at Clemson every game or if uh, Carolina played at Carolina every time against Clemson. You know, you remember Big Thursday. Yep. Uh, 1896 till 1959, they played at the fairgrounds in Columbia. Big Thursday, you're right. And uh, so Clemson finally caught on, hey, maybe we should play a game at Clemson. And uh, anyway. Uh, Davis, did Clemson have a football stadium in that period? They may not have. That may have been yeah. a problem. But uh, the uh, – they had a riot in 1902 and didn't play for seven years. And then they picked it back up. But the uh, end result was uh, Clemson won 33 of those matches, uh, Carolina 21, and they had three ties. Appreciate that jab, Davis. Thank you very much um, <laughs> for, for reminding me of my um, – my, my, the team that is near and dear to my heart has had great struggles with its rivals. I am so unbelievably aware of that. Mm -hmm. Davis, you wouldn't know how aware I am of that. You've got no idea how many remotes I've had to replace. But, I mean, I don't Throw go to Clemson a lot. I went to Clemson several years because I had buddies and going to school there, and we'd go to the game and, and drink and have a big time. And it was always civil. I mean, nobody ever got stupid. I mean, people got stupid. People in our parties didn't get stupid. So most of the games in Clemson I watched on television. 
And most of those games we lost. And most of those games I got irate and would normally throw a a remote across the yard or across the room or hit the wall with it or whatever. I don't think I ever tore television up, but several remotes. But that's how you take out displaced. your frustrations, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Throw the remote. Well, I mean, that, that's why you like. See, somebody asked me about the Georgia game at noon. I said, well, the Gamecock fans are worried about the noon game because by 7.30, you can be somewhat inebriated. You can be overprepared. Yeah, to and, and there you go. Shane Beamer said, if you go into the game and you need a longer time to prepare, just go earlier. <laughs> I mean, he gets it. He understands it. Tailgating's a big part of uh, of the extravagant, the pomp and circumstance, the pageantry of college football. Sure. But, um, Davis, thank you very much for informing <laughs> me. <laughs> That even when the game was played exclusively in Columbia, my chicken still didn't fare very well. Back in a minute. Yeah, Shane said if the game starts at 12, just get there at 6. <laughs> just imagine it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. It's 6 o'clock in the morning, but just do your thing. If it takes you six hours to prepare for a football game, then begin your pre- ah, preparation at yeah. 6 in the morning. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Hey, Georgia might be as good a team that has been to Williams-Brice in a long, long time. I was thinking about the Alabama team that was number one that the Gamecocks beat. Um, and then I thought about a couple of Clemson teams, a couple of Georgia teams. This might be the best team that has been to Columbia in the last dozen or so years. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking about good teams. I mean, Clemson brought a couple of really good teams there with Watson and and um, with the other guy. What's his name? Lawrence, Trevor yeah, Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence. Um, but but – this team, this team is really, really, really good. Let's go to the phone. Rodney in Florence. Good morning, Rodney. Um, I'm in tears right now in a good way. What Governor Abbott out of Texas did to send two busloads of migrants to the vice president's front your door, that's beautiful. That's wicked beautiful. And God bless the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> here, here on the Cubs. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Rodney. You appreciate there. that. We actually um we did a cheers to the Cubs first thing this morning. Uh, for those that don't know, the Braves went out west, lost two of three to the Mariners, lost two of three to the Giants. Let one in Seattle get away in particular. Um, no shame in losing two or three on the road to two teams like the Giants and Mariners. But the Mets had a chance at home to make up some ground, and they blew it got swept by the Chicago Cubs. And, you know, a team with a less than 500 record playing on your field should be two of three about every time. And the Mets blew it. I mean, it kept the Braves within a half game. I think they've got the same number of losses. So the Braves come back home only a half game out of first place. The Naval Observatory is where the vice president lives, and it is comical. I mean, it is, it is hysterical to watch. I'll tell you what else is funny. A plane lands at Martha's Vineyard, and a CEO doesn't get out. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. some, some wine connoisseur doesn't get out. Uh, it's, it's not um, Alan Dershowitz's entourage. It is a, a train, excuse me, a plane full of migrants, uh, illegal immigrants. DeSantis. Yeah, the DeSantis' that. ship. So, I mean, I made notes this morning <laughs> that Abbott and DeSantis appear to be trying to turn every town into a border town. Remember the Brooks and Dunn song? kind of like lost and found in a border town. They're trying to turn every town in America into a border town. And I'll ask the establishment Republican, with all due respect, I mean, for those that don't like this new energy within the party, that, that is this kind of a, I mean, obviously Trump's the, uh, the, the grand poopah. He's the godfather of the new political energy within the Republican Party. But we got to agree that Abbott and, and DeSantis are both part of that. Can you imagine 
an establishment Republican orchestrating this sort of response? No. no. I mean, it would have been it would have been a written word or the spoken word. I'll send a letter to some of those. Um, if you're in Massachusetts, why do you worry about the border? I mean, if you're in New York City, why do you worry about the border? If you're in Martha's Vineyards, why do you worry about the border? Well, we'll bring the border to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're if you if you're not concerned about the two million people that illegally make their way across this um, this border in the past twelve months, that Kamala Harris says the border is secure, and even Chuck Todd can't go there. I mean, when Harris gets crossed up with Chuck Todd, she's really, really, really out there. But I do believe it is a it is a great, great strategy. Now, the mainstream media probably won't report on it as much, but it's really bothering the governor of Illinois, the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of New York City. I've not heard much from Martha's Vineyards. I don't know, you know, what sort of um, political leadership they have over that way. Don't frequent Martha's Vineyard very often. But when you see a, a twin engine plane land at the airport in Martha's Vineyard and you wait on you know, some uh, so some VIP to get out, yeah. and uh, here comes uh, illegal immigrant after illegal immigrant, and next thing you know, they're they're sleeping on the edge of the beach. You know, in some of these five star, uh, and no, that's not a resort town. I mean, I guess it is a resort town. No, it's a tourist town, but not so much a resort town. Yeah, I mean, right, no question about it. Thumbs up to Abbott. Thumbs up to DeSantis. And um, I mean, I'd send every other busload. I mean, I really would. I would make every one of these sanctuary cities, a border town. That's right. I, I would. It would be Make bus load after, bus load after bus load after bus load after bus load. The mayor of New York City is already beginning to say that some of the homeless shelters are at their breaking point. Build another one. Put them in tents. Do what you got to do. I mean, you, you, your your party, your president, your political leadership has decided that we, you know, we need to have open borders. A porous border is a good thing in America. So deal with it. And, and I, I'd love to see two or three bus loads every single day in front of the Naval Observatory and let Kamala Harris, who's in charge of, I mean, isn't that kind of her project? She's special projects coordinator to be. for the White House. She's in charge of border security. So um, if the border's secure, where are all these damn illegals coming from? You know where they're coming from. You've never had any interest in securing the border. Now, now here's the dirty secret. If the 20, 2022 midterms, if the 22 midterms show that the Hispanic vote is turned, there'll be a wall as high as the sky. You think the so? Re- oh, yeah. The reason, well, here, here's the dilemma. Here's the dynamic. Let me explain it to you. You ready? I'm gathering from sources that once you enter the country and check in, so to speak, as an asylum seeker, you're assigned a status. You're not illegal anymore. I mean, by definition, you're not illegal. You enter the country, you go to a DEA agent or a border agent, and you say, "Hey, man, I'm an asylum seeker." What do you? We got to. We can't decide today whether you're an asylum seeker or not. No, but I mean, you're supposed to assign me a status. So you assign a you assign a status. Now they believe these people to come back. We know better than that. But once they become, once they have an assignment made, I believe. I mean, technically, and once again, I'm not in Nevada or, or Arizona, but here's what I think is going to happen. I believe that once you declare yourself an asylum seeker and you're assigned a status, you're allowed to go work. You don't have to live in the shadows any longer. You're waiting on a hearing. The hearing may be six months from now, maybe a year from now. But you go to Nevada and Arizona and you try to get a job. And the job you're trying to get is a you're working in the hospitality industry in Las Vegas. Who are you competing with? All of a sudden, you've got a legal Hispanic 
working for $20 an hour in the hospitality industry. And this asylum seeker who's all of a sudden been assigned to status says, I'll do that job for 15. All of a sudden, the Hispanic is mad with the Hispanic. It's a little bit like the textile industry went from the north to the south, from the south to China. Why did they do that? It was cheaper, right? I mean, the, the unions kind of took over the northeast. They could come down south, right to work states. They could make these textile, or they run these textile mills a lot cheaper. Next thing you know, it wasn't cheap enough. China would do it even cheaper than the southern um, non-labor uh, or non-union labor would. I think there's something similar to this happening. And I think that's why the registered Hispanic voter are beginning to turn to the Republican because they're letting in all of these illegal immigrants. They're assigning a status. They don't have to they're live competing. in the shadows any longer. They're competing in the marketplace for employment. Yeah. And they're competing with one another. So if I'm an Hispanic and I'm legal and I did it the right way, and all of a sudden my job is in jeopardy or my wage is in jeopardy because of all these illegals coming across the border, but they're not really illegal because they've been assigned a status, I'm voting for the guy that wants to close the border. Now, I wonder if they don't show up for their hearing, if they're, what's their status I have no then? idea. Are they I, mean, I, can't, I can't find that out. I mean, I, you know, and I've read a million articles, and it's almost like Google says, no, 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 we'll let you know this, <laughs> but we're not going to ever let you know, you know that. I mean, it really that's, and truly. That's the algorithm at work. I feel I play a game with Google every day. <laughs> can, can I type this in a certain way? I imagine that, some days it wins and some days well, I mean, it, it beats me a lot more than I beat yeah. it. I can assure you of that. Let's go to the phone. Cocky Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, guys. Um, it's funny that my wife gets up every morning and turns on Good Morning America with Gail, what's her name, the, the black woman that, that's on there. And I have to translate their stories. Every time they run a story, a headline or something, I have to translate it into Republican because they speak Democrat. Because it used to be that um, uh, people who came across the border were undocumented workers and they were asylum seekers and they were everything else. And this morning, I know the headline said DeSantis sends 50 illegal immigrants. So now, all of a sudden, they're illegal immigrants when DeSantis is sending them to a sanctuary city. But I sat there, and I watched that story. And they ran the story, and they told – and Gail just makes this excruciatingly painful face. Oh, my God. They sent them there. They just showed up with no notice. And I'm like, hey, welcome to the border where 2,000 people show up without notice. She says there was nowhere for them to go. Look, that's some of the most expensive real estate, you know, in the Northeast. And she said uh, – the guy said, well, it's a small town of only 15,000 people. Look, if 15,000 of the richest people in the world can't afford to, to take care of 50 immigrants, immigrants, by the way, coming off of, of a plane, I mean, who can? But this this idea of sending and spending the money to send these people up, man, this just, just makes my day and makes me smile for, um, to hear all these the governors and the cities that have been – you know, bad-mouthing everybody Republican, and now they're having to eat it. So makes me happy. Makes Thank me happy. Guys. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. I think it's genius. I mean, I think Abbott and DeSantis, I mean, it'll happen. I mean, th these guys are dealing with it every day. I mean, it's creating enormous strains on their state budgets. Uh, nobody wants to be inhumane. I mean, everybody to some degree, I think Republicans and Democrats have a, a certain humanity about them. Um, it's just a different way to address it. And, yeah, I mean, I would do this daily. I mean, I, I would lease every bus I could get my hands on and, and every illegal immigrant that made its way across the border. It's obvious they're not going to secure the border, right? I mean, that's obvious. I mean, we're, we're past believing that a Democrat is serious about securing the border. So when, once they get across the border, put them on a bus, 
Sanctuary City A, Sanctuary City B, Sanctuary when City C. When the vice C. president says we're already secured at the border, of yeah. course. So. But, but I'll tell you, it, it's another animal when you drop them off in front of the residence of the vice president. I mean, that, that takes it to another degree. And I'll ask this question again to the Republican establishment holdout who loves and romances about, you know, the, the days gone by of, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill and Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. This is the strategy we must follow. We must fight fire with fire. We're not dealing with an honest agent. We're not bartering with a, with a, a party with mutual interest, which is not. I mean, the Democrats want to basically unify the nation behind their worldview. It's not, I mean, when they say unity, you damn right it's unity. I mean, they want you to unify behind what they believe in. And if you don't, you'll be like the pillow guy. I mean, imagine the my pillow guy being a threat to democracy. I mean, maybe he's a bit nutty. Is there a law against being a bit nutty? Maybe he's a believer in the, the big liar, the voting. Is there a law against that? Really? But the my pillow guy is going to have his phone confiscated. Why? Because he questions the outcome of the election. And if you question the outcome of this election, you can question the 2008, the 2004, the 2016. In fact, Kamala Harris, as a senator, said publicly she had strong reservations about what happened in 2016. But if you cancel that 2020, and here's the travesty in this, and here's the scary part of it. It's not CNN looking for who you are. It's not MSNBC. It's not the New York Times and Washington Post. It's the FBI. It's the DOJ. It's the administrative, it's law enforcement agencies in this country who are charged with treating people equally. And that's just absolutely not the case. So the pillow guy is a threat to democracy? The absurdity of that. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Morning, Neil. Hey guys, I had a, I had thoughts on a couple of topics from earlier, but uh, as I was sitting here waiting on the phone, um, one thing to think about when you're talking about the the illegal immigrants versus the the people who are here legally, Cesar Chavez uh, is a name that we as Republicans need to know and need to think about. It's somebody who we would not have agreed with back in the '60s and '70s when he was leading the uh, the farm worker uh, revolt in California, but he was adamantly and vehemently against illegal immigration because he knew what it did to the poor working class. And I think if we, I think the Republicans have kind of, kind of stumbled upon this. I mean, uh, Hispanic, uh, I don't know if it's a resurgence, but the resurgence of Hispanics leaning Republican. But I think we owe it to ourselves to think about him and talk about him and realize uh, his stance uh, on the working people. Um, And he's, and he's an icon in the Hispanic community. So I think Republicans need to maybe kind of embrace some of that and start quoting him. Well explained. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. 843-661-093. I do our callers such an injustice. I mean, I'm talking about something. They get on hold. We have a call and then another call and then another call. And by then we're talking about, you know, third world poverty or something. I mean, our callers call in to discuss what it is we're talking about. And by the time we get them on the air, we're, we're light years away <laughs> from where we were. Times. And that's on me. I got to do better <laughs> at keeping the train heading in a, in a common direction instead of just, you know, this exit, that exit, another exit. Let's do this. Let's talk about that. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Got about two and a half minutes. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, <laughs> quick uh, fact check on, on three topics real quick. Uh, number one, uh, are you guys aware of, like, uh, some of the alternative energy um uh, 
plans that are being developed for micro nuclear power. Yeah. Systems. So some of the hydrocarbon yeah. and I mean, there, there are a lot of other things no, no. out there. So like, like Dow Chemical is actually going to power one of their facilities, which is a major user of electricity with a micro nuclear power plant. Okay. So uh, that happens because uh, they're looking for alternative energy and, and ways to feed these uh, plants that are going to produce clean and efficient new cool. fuels. Cool. Methanol, ethanol, all those. Encouraging, number yeah. Two, <laughs> number two, uh, the MyPillow guy, um, he paid people and has in his possession software that was illegally obtained from Wisconsin and Arizona of the software systems that we use to run our elections. So why is he not in prison? Why is he not in jail? Why do you think? But well, I mean, you just you just made a statement. You said no, he no, has no, this no, material. That's investigation. That's no, no, no. You just wrong. said you didn't say anything about investigation. You said he has this software in his possession. If you know, surely they know. And if they know, why, why is he not it. being charged with a crime? He, he, Sidney Powell is. That is, you know, this is happening, right? You know, Sidney Powell. They paid people. They have on video people illegally going into these courthouses and downloading that software that they could is it in classified hands is it in do you trust Sidney powell with information like no that? no not at all okay so that's that and number three you want to know why we have uh you know illegal immigration your caller was right they've been talking about this problem in the 60s it didn't just happen during joe biden reagan amnestied a bunch of illegal immigration and if you want to look at our historically low unemployment rate and now the labor market spiking, America has always been driven with illegal, not illegal, immigrant cheap labor. Will you agree to that? Sure. Okay. I think the so big, I think the big loser, the, the big loser in open and open border policies is the American working class without question. It, it, it's the American consumer too. To some degree, I'll agree with that. Jeff, I'm sorry, man. I don't normally cut you off, no but we problem. only got about we only got about 20 seconds here. I'd like to extend the conversation, uh, especially the um, the my pillow guy. I've heard a lot of these things. I've read a lot of reporting on these things. Um, I've not seen him charged with a crime. Maybe he's guilty. Let's find out. Um, call tomorrow, Jeff. Seriously, call tomorrow, and we'll um, discuss further. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.